Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We are at Erev Tishabov 5780. Tishabov begins tonight as our friends at Jewish Calendar Tidbits uh, on Twitter, and we recommend you follow Jewish Calendar Tidbits at Tidbits Jewish. Uh, as they uh, remind us, there's no Tachanun today at Mincha on Erev Tishabov, in anticipation of Tishabov eventually becoming a holiday for the Jewish people. And um, in addition to that, in addition to that, uh, they point out that this is the uh, this is the this is the Tishabov or one of the observances of Tisha B'Av that, that is right in the middle of the summer, at least in this uh, hemisphere. It's right in the middle of the summer, um, July 29th. Next year, in fact, that Tisha B'Av will be on the secular calendar a couple of weeks earlier. I think you may have heard David Cutler mention yesterday that Yom NCSY in Israel uh, next year is going to be on the 19th of July. That's already after Tisha B'Av. So... Um, I'm always fascinated by the calendar, and this year I guess we could say it's a pretty average placement on the secular calendar, uh, July the 30th, tomorrow being uh, Tisha B'Av. So here we are in Erev Tisha B'Av, our nine days format, uh, dominated by the amazing uh, spoken word uh, presentations of Ibero Wine. His lectures are amazing. We're in the middle of a series right now, The Challenges of Secularism. Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayes, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayes, his biography is an important part of the lecture series, The Challenges of Secularism. And that's how we're going to start this Wednesday era of Tisha B'Av morning at JM and the AM. I remind you, coming up at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, Abe Foxman, um, National Director of the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, for many years. He'll be joining us. There's a new initiative at the Met Council on Jewish Poverty which he is chairing. We'll discuss that, and we will discuss um, his life story, which is pretty remarkable, and as I've been saying, it is a story that is quite appropriate for Erev Tishabov when we focus on the challenges that the Jewish people have had through tragedy uh, in our history, including during modern Jewish history. Uh, the Challenges of Secularism, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayes. Here's Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. The uh, biography tonight concerns itself with one of uh, one of the most fascinating uh, people in Jewish history in the 19th century, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayes. 
And uh, as uh, we have seen uh, in the study of biographies, that I've tried to choose biographies not only of people, but of people who were prototypes, who in their lives represented the age that they lived in and the problems and the struggles and the wars. And I think that there's no one that equals this story of Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayas, uh, because it, the, uh, the years that he lived, and he sh lived a relatively short life. He was uh, born in 1805, and he uh, died in 1857, so he lived 52 years. Uh, in his short life, though, he uh, personified the struggle of his time. And the struggle of his time basically was the secularization of the Jewish people. The uh, winds of Haskola that blew from Germany eastward. So even though reform in the sense that uh, reform took over in Germany and in France never took over in Eastern Europe, but a different type of reform took over. And that reform was the secularization of the Jewish people. It was not so much the assimilation to become Russian and Polish as, it much, as much as it was the secularization of the Jewish people to give up their, literally their religion, their beliefs, their traditions, and to invest all of that great Jewish talent and energy in false gods. Uh, again, from the hindsight of almost 200 years, we see the destruction that Ascola wrought amongst the people of Israel. And we see that the basic premises upon which Ascola was based, uh, the triumph of secular humanism, the fact that the world was going to get better and better, that technology was a boon and a solution to spiritual problems as well, that anti-Semitism would disappear, with the secularization of the Jewish people. All of those premises have unfortunately been proven to be bitterly false. After, uh, after 70 years of communism, after Auschwitz, after Saddam Hussein, after all the afters, we have very little uh, faith left in any of these things. They've all proven to be uh, terrible, terrible uh, blows to the Jewish people, and they have not contributed to our security or our well-being. Therefore, uh, if we look back in time, it may be difficult for us to uh, believe and to uh, appreciate the inroads that were made within the Jewish people in a very, very short period of time, in less than 30 years and how the Jewish people changed from being basically a traditional religious observant people into a, having a very large section, if not the majority, but a very large section. And I'm talking here about Eastern Europe. I'm not talking about the new city. I'm talking here about Galicia and about Poland, about Czechoslovakia, about Hungary. I'm talking about the heartland of Jewish life and how it changed in a relatively short period of time to become uh, socialist, to become secular humanist, to become uh, non-observant, uh, to become uh, anti-observant, anti-religious. Uh, in a different lecture, uh, 
I discussed with you how Zionism was able to ride that horse and uh, attach all of the uh, adherence of Haskola to the Zionist movement. And that gave it its initial, initial impetus. And it exported the Haskola to the land of Israel, where it's the only place in the world today where it still exists. The exile is long since through with this. The Jewish world today in the exile is either Goyim or Jews. Uh, that's the status that it is reaching. But in Israel, where they're all Jewish, so then the, uh, the situation uh, has a resemblance to what happened 200 years ago, and that's why it's important for us to understand this man's biography, to appreciate who he was, because we will see that in his struggles and in his life they're played out many of the things that we see played out in front of our eyes today, things that otherwise are unimaginable. But you have to realize that there, I've said it often, there's no fight like a family fight, there's no struggle like a struggle within the Jewish people, and extremists abound, and extremists do extreme things. And they do it under the cloak of a justifiable behavior because they are fighting for a cause. And in the fight for a cause, all means justi are justified, everything can happen. We're going to, in a few moments, I can keep you awake, I'll tell you in advance, that in a few moments I'm going to tell you about how the fact that they poisoned the reform rabbi and his daughter and killed him something which even today would give us pause. And we'll also see how uh, the secularists went to the Austrian government and had most of the rabbis in Austria and Hungary and Galicia removed from office. And uh, all sorts of terrible things, just terrible things. Uh, you know, uh, it almost makes the uh, Jewish press look discreet. So to a certain extent, you know, you, we've come a long way, baby, but, uh, but it's a terrible story. And once, if people understand the story, they're going to understand what happened to us and what is happening to us and why these things can happen today and continue to happen today. There is no, no extremism like extremism. I like that for a profound thought. I mean, just yesterday uh, in the Associated Press, uh, the New York Times did not carry it, but it was carried in many, many other papers. I saw it in Toronto in the newspaper. Uh, one of the advisors on the Palestinian delegation is a black-hatted, side-curled, long-frocked religious rabbi from Meishorim who claims that he's a Jewish Palestinian and he wants the Palestinian state. And I... And he's got his name there, and he gives an interview and everything. So you look at that, and you're just, you know, you've you got to be out of your mind, right? But that's the way it is, because extremism begets extremism. And once that happens, so then at least he did not poison Shamir's cup of tea. All right. Now, Tzvi Hirsch Chayas, Chayas, by the way, is spelled... C-H-A-J-E-S. 
in the Hebrew name Chayas, Chiyas, Ches Yud Vav Tov, means life. He was uh, born into an, in 1805 to a distinguished rabbinic family that not only were rabbis for many, many years, his great-grandfather was the rabbi of Vienna, but uh, more than that, they were very wealthy people. And here, I mean, here is a person who literally was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. The Lord gave him everything. A photographic memory, uh, genius, uh, the ability to uh, be a uh, charismatic, charming person, a handsome person. Uh, there is really, uh, it's almost, uh, you know, uh, one would say it's almost too much. And that's really what happened to him in his life, is that he was too much. It would have been a little less, could have gotten away with a lot more. But sometimes there are people that are blessed with too much. And too much, many times in life, is uh, equal to, if not greater than, too little. So he's the uh, typical art scroll biography. When he was five years old, he knew every posing in Tanakh. They would ask him. He was he, he was a uh, a, uh, a wonder child, and uh, because he was a wonder child, so then people would come to play with him. So they would say to him, you know, Tzvihersh, uh, where does this word right? And he'd tell you where the word was, and not and then he'd tell you what word was before it and what word was after it. And we're not talking here about Breshis Bora, we're talking about Eov, Mishle, Doniel, uh, things that in many institutions of learning uh, they don't quite get up to. And uh, uh, because of all of that, he, uh, he was famous. He was famous throughout Galicia. His father, Mayor Chias, his father was a diamond merchant, and his father was a great uh, businessman, uh, and he was uh, he was very very well known in uh, in Galicia, and he, as I mentioned to you, he had uh, this uh, tremendous wealth. He also had. Uh, what we would call today uh, the equivalent, at least, of a secular education, his father. Uh, his father was a, certainly a very, very uh, religious, uh, observant Jew uh, who never saw himself as part of the, of the Haskola. He lived in the city abroad in Galicia, and he was the president of the Kehillah. In the eastern, especially in Galicia, the Roshakol, the Parnas, had tremendous power. And the uh, Jewish establishment uh, uh, was very, very powerful. I mean, if you were part of the Jewish establishment, then a lot of good things could happen to you. And those that were not part of it uh, felt many times, and justifiably so, discriminated against. The Jewish people, uh, all of our legends about Eastern European Jewry uh, 
serve us ill because we think of a life uh, an idyllic life of fiddler on the roof of uh, you know where never is heard a discouraging word and everybody just loved being poor and it made no difference and everybody came home and then went to the base Amedrish to learn for 16 hours at night and then you know there, there were no problems and you love to have 15 children and whatever blows God gave were taken with equanimity well, that's all a lie. And the perpetuation of that lie does a great disservice because then a person can't live his or her life today in any sort of perspective. And therefore, that's all not real. That wasn't the way it was. It was a tremendous class struggle. The lower classes, that's why you had the hatred and that's why you still have it today. The Jews did not turn to socialism only out of idealism. They wanted to throw the rascals out, and there was no way to do it. And the rascals, many times, were the leaders of the Jewish community, the wealthy class that imposed their will. There were no general elections for a rabbi or general elections for anything. Five people decided for a town that had 50,000 Jews. And that system also put the rabbi in the pocket of five people because he was not responsible nor responsive to the general community. It was a terrible situation, but that situation has not changed today. For instance, in the land of Israel, where rabbis are elected by Moetzat Datit, which maybe has 50 people, right, for the city of Tel Aviv, so 50 people decide who's going to be the chief rabbi in Tel Aviv that has a half a million Jews. And one can imagine, without casting aspersions, that not all 50, you know, had Gilio the night before to decide who the best rabbi would be. And you had, therefore, this type. It, I, think it's, I think it's probably the most unfair system in the world to the rabbi. He hasn't got a chance. And you have perpetuated this system, which eats, eats at the, the innards of the Jewish people. It's not fair. It's not democratic. It doesn't, it doesn't meet the needs. So you have a system that was, uh, that was a copy of a 16th and 17th century Poland in the non-Jewish world, and the Jews adopted it, and the Jews have perpetuated it. Even the Poles have given it up. So his father was the president of abroad. The rabbi abroad was one of the great Gaonim and Sadikim of the time, Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolius. Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolius, the base Ephraim, who was a great Gaon and Sadik, who was also a very, very wealthy man, independently wealthy, never took a salary from, the, from any community, who wrote many Sforim, he also founded a great yeshiva in Broad, which he himself supported single-handedly. He never asked in his lifetime. I mean, it's the dream of every rov, never to have to ask anybody for a nickel. Do what you want and just, you know, don't bother me. So he never, he was an extremely powerful person because of that position. And the president, Rabbi his father, was also. So like the town lay in the hands of two people.
And he was born, the little boy was born into this position of power, of wealth. And Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolius, who was a genius and recognized as a genius when he saw one, took, so, he, so he probably would have learned with the president's child, even if the president's child would have been the dunce that the president's child usually is. But here he had the president's child. <laughs> you don't have to, it's on tape, Sherry. <laughs> But here you have the, the kid is a genius. And Rabbi Fine Zalman Margolius sees in the child what he didn't see in his own children, because his children were not him. And therefore, from uh, really the earliest age on, he took the child in as his child. And he gave him everything that he had. So by the time. Three years, she's 15, 16. You learn 10 years of Chavrusa with Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Margolius. You know something. The something was the entire Babylonian Talmud, the Yerushalmi, everything. He knew Kola Torah Kula. But he also had a penchant for reading, which sometimes can be dangerous. And by reading, I don't mean uh, necessarily uh, holy books. He read philosophy, he taught himself mathematics, he taught himself science, he taught himself languages. He had that kind of mind and that kind of intellectual curiosity. So that in his milieu, the child was a maskil because he had all of the secular knowledge and he didn't hide the secular knowledge. There were mo there were, it, it's hard, again, for us to put ourselves in that in that frame of reference, but the war against the Maskilim was no quarter asked and no quarter given. And the, the uh, main antagonists in the war were the Chassidim against the Maskilim. The Maskilim ridiculed the Chassidim, they ridiculed the Rebbes. The Maskilim did all sorts of things. They, they put nails in the Chassidish Mikveh. I mean, they did things that are just they mastered them to the government. They made fun of them. They would disguise themselves as chassidim and disrupt the Rebbe's tish. It was just wild, and the chassidim retaliated in kind. So that anyone that was suspected of being a Moscow, it was a reign of terror. And you and to make it all fit the picture, all of them belong to the same shul. It isn't that you had a Maskilish shul and you had a Chassidish shul and you had Ashkenazi. It was all one kehila. It was all one shul, and whoever was the rov had to be the rov for everyone. Again, if you think about it, that's Eretz Yisrael today. Rav Cook Rechovot, a dear and great man. Great man. So he said to me, he said, I envy you. I said, you envy me? You're the Rabbi Rehovah, right? You know, and I, so he said, listen, he said, in your shul, he said, you don't have Shulam at Aloni as a member. <laughs> Whoever's in your shul wants to be in your shul, right? He said, by me, she's sitting on my couch. She's a member of my board. He said, we, we, have to, we, the, we have to have them all. I mean, that's it. He's the rabbi for all of them. 
And if you think about it, you'll see that, the, 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 that again, it's an impossible situation. And because it's such an impossible situation, that's why it's so full of strife and friction and ill will, no understanding, because it's a no quarter given and no quarter asked. I mean, nobody's going to, nobody, they won't give in on, you know, what kind of, what color ink to sign in. You think I'm joking. If you send a letter in blue ink, the Rabbanut won't accept it. It has to be written in black ink. That's it. That's the war. So he's born into this war. And he's going to make the uh, attempt because he has a great deal of self-confidence. He has a self-confidence born of being a wealthy child, a genius, of having learned with the Rav for 10 years, of being the, you know, the Tzatzki in town. That everybody, uh, everybody, uh, you know, pinched his cheek. So because he has all of that, he thinks that he's going to be able to get away with it. That he's going to have the best of all worlds. And that he'll do so without opposition. And that everyone will recognize his sincerity. And everyone will agree with his philosophy and will not be... Uh, he will not be subjected to the tides of the time. We'll see that most of his life was miserable, with one tragedy piled upon another. And uh, you have to have, uh, the, the Gemara says that, Philia Pirkei de Rebeleza, that even the Sefer Torah in the Ark needs mazel. Yeah, some Sefer Torah get taken out right, all the time, some almost never get taken out. There can be a Sefer Torah that you can take out and you never find the mistake, even though it has a mistake in it. For some reason, they never pick it up. And the other Sefer Torah you take out and they see a mistake right away and they parcel it. Sefer Torah also needs mazel. Well, a person certainly needs mazel. If he would have been born in Germany, he would have been, he would have out Samson Rayfield Hirsch himself. They'd carry him on his pedestal. If he would exist today in the United States, in the middle of Orthodox Jewry, he would be the leader. I mean, nobody could knock him. Nobody. Chassidim, Misnagdim, Yeshiva, right, center, green, black. We don't possess a person like that. He'd be the chief rabbi of Israel. I mean, you wouldn't have, right? But he's 1805 Galicia. And so he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that will uh, that will take its toll. The city abroad in Galicia, which is his hometown, was called Yerushalayim the Austria. It was the Jerusalem of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, just as Vilna was called Yerushalayim the Lite, just as Cordova was called Yerushalayim the Sforad, just as the Kilos Shum were called Yerushalayim of France. There's only one Yerushalayim. All of these other Yerushalayims are very temporary in the, to us. We don't even have in America a place that's Yerushalayim. Abroad was so uh, Jewish. It was, I mean, even the non-Jewish part was Jewish. It was controlled by Jews. The, uh, the retail industry in town was Jewish. The industry was Jewish. 
so that uh, the, uh, the emperor of Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg family, so from the time of the Crusades, as part of their imperial title, uh, one of his titles was King of Jerusalem. Because on the, when the Crusaders in the Third Crusade, when they uh, again took Jerusalem away from the Moslems, so uh, the Habsburgs were the Holy Roman Emperors, and therefore they took that as part of their title, King of Jerusalem. Well, by 1805, he was not the King of Jerusalem, even though uh, it still remained in his title. But the legend was that that he came once abroad to visit his subjects, and he saw what kind of Jewish town it was, and he said for the first time he understands why his title is King of Jerusalem, because of the strong Jewish presence and influence in the town. In Broad, as I mentioned to you, there were three distinct groups. There were the Chassidim, there were the Maskilim, and there were the, uh, I can't even got a right word for it, I don't want to say the middle, not the moderates, but there was a group in the, there was a, the group that ran the town, the establishment, who somehow attempted to keep the whole thing together, even though it was very, very difficult to do. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the matter soon fell into shambles. There were two approaches that uh, the non-Hasidim had towards the Haskola. One was the approach of the Hassam Sofer, Moshe Sofer, who was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who lived in the imperial city of Prezborg, which today is called Bratislava. Uh, his approach was not to cooperate with the Maskilim, not to compromise with the Maskilim, uh, not to give in one iota. His slogan was, Chodosh Osir Torah. We don't want anything new. We will not give up one custom, even if the custom is ludicrous. Nothing. And the Chassam Sofer was the man of iron, and he beat it over their heads. And that prevailed, certainly prevailed in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia. It was not as successful in Austria, which did turn reform. The second uh, response to Haskola was what later on became Shimshin Refoil Hirsch's response in Frankfurt of Torim Derech Eretz to beat the Haskola with their own weapons at their own game. We will be just as sophisticated and modern as you are. We will also speak perfect German and be loyal citizens of the country. We will also be doctors and lawyers and physicists and musicians, but we will not compromise on our religion and our faith. We will show that you can be an Orthodox Jew and quote a modern person, unquote, at the same time. Because of the influence of the Hasidim, see, Hirsch could never have done that with Hasidim around. Never. They would not have been allowed. He would have been run out of the party. 
So Hirsch is a phenomena, he's an accident. It's uh, something that happened in Frankfurt, in the base Medrash Rabonim Hildesheimer happened in Berlin, but it could never go east and it could never go west. In the, the Hasidim adopted the Chassam Sofer's policy, but they were more extreme than the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer uh, never uh, practiced nor advocated uh, violence. He never uh, pushed the matter that there should be uh, uh, an open war within the Jewish people. The Chassam Sofer writes in one of his chuvas, they once asked him why in his chuvas we find almost no reference to reform. Like in Tahaskola, he never writes about it. So he wrote back, he said he didn't see any benefit in publicizing and polemicizing the dispute. But the Chassidim were not that restrained at all. And uh, to them, the dispute was uh, was always out in the streets. And because of that, and the Chassidim, you have to remember, composed uh, the majority, certainly, of orthodoxy in Galicia, even though there were great wars between the Chassidim themselves, uh, one of the most bitter disputes between the Sanzer Chassidim the original Chassidim, Sadegir, terrible, terrible things. Exactly what I told you happened the other way, happened between the Chassidim themselves too. And uh, the Ashkenazim, the Talmudim, and the Chassam Sofer also were non-Chassidic, and there was therefore uh, a lot of friction, contests for the rabbinate, contests for uh, public position, whether who to whom it would fall. This is uh, one of the most disputatious, violent, chaotic, embarrassing periods in Jewish history. And uh, for reasons that are beyond me, nobody ever knows about it. Maybe it's better. Could be. So you should buy the tape and burn it. <laughs> but first buy it. This struggle... Uh, reflected itself in every major community in Galicia and in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and it also reflected itself in even the smallest of villages. So that every time a rabbi had to be hired in a community, this war, that was the battlefront. And there was no... Uh, there was no, there never was a simple way to get out of this. And there were therefore great communities that went years without a rabbi simply because it couldn't be done. No one could build the coalition necessary to hire. And many times Rabonin came and left within three months, six months. Many of them died of broken hearts within a few years. We'll see that he himself, uh, his health failed because of because of all of these uh, wars that went on. Now, again, he was a person. He was a Renaissance man. All right, he knew everything. If you'll see his picture, he doesn't look like a Renaissance man. He had a tremendous strimal with 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 payers, 
I mean, if you saw him on the street today, you know, you would say that, uh, you know, that's uh, it's Mayor Shorim incarnate. But that was the dress. And uh, in terms of his observance, he was a punctilious person. He was, a, he was really a righteous tzaddik. He had himself all the greatness. But he had this, not only the secular education, he had the belief that secular education was necessary in order to save the Jewish people in the 19th century. And he firmly believed it. Uh, he saw himself as a disciple of the Rambam. Uh, he saw himself fighting the battle that the Rambam fought uh, eight centuries previously, six centuries previously. And he uh, was convinced that in the 19th century, the Jewish people, at least in Galicia, would not survive as Orthodox unless somehow the problems of the time were addressed, and they were addressed in a sophisticated and uh, modern fashion, however he would define that. Therefore, uh, he was married at 18. He had a, uh, a tremendous amount of money. Uh, he never had to work a day in his life. And he could have, had he wished, uh, he also by then had begun a great literary career. He is prolific. We have dozens of books that he wrote, of enormous uh, volumes that he wrote on, on every subject in the Jewish world. He wrote a commentary to the Talmud, which is printed in the back of every Vilna Shas. But there are chassidim that till today will not use a Vilna Shas because his commentary is printed in the back. And he, uh, he said he could have, uh, he really could have uh, had it all. But he had a burning desire to be a Rav, which is only a slight insanity. It can be cured. It usually is. And he therefore went searching for a position where he could be the Rav. He was very young. He was 21, 22 years old. The, uh, even though he was a well-known genius in Talmud Chochem and Gon, uh, people were hesitant to have a younger. People liked to have a young rabbi with 30 years of experience. And see, it was hard for him to find the place. It was also difficult because of the fact that he uh, didn't have a smicha. So he went around to the great rabbis to obtain a smicha, and he obtained smicha for some of the greatest rabbis of the time. Unquestionably the greatest rabbis of the time. Later on, when he became such a controversial person, Many of the rabbis who gave him the smicha were hard-pressed by their followers, and especially by the chassidim, to explain how they gave smicha to him. Didn't they know that he had a secular background? Didn't he know that, etc., etc.? That there's a famous joke, haha, that's told is that they asked one of the rabbis, and he said, if I wouldn't have given him smicha and made him a rabbi, he would have ended up a priest. So that was the lesser of two evils. But that 
that uh, anecdote again summarizes in a capsule form what kind of uh, problem we're talking about, what kind of world we're talking about. So he went looking. Because of the fact uh, that there were a lot of Jewish geniuses around and a lot of great Talmud HaChomim around, there weren't rabbinic positions. That's true in Eastern Europe. It's true to a great extent even today. There are certainly more capable people around than there are positions for them. And because of that, you have, uh, you have a lot of frustrated people and you have other problems. Uh, in Eastern Europe in the 19th century, it was uh, not uncommon that rabbis would buy positions because, again, you only needed the votes of relatively few people. And therefore, uh, I, I'm not talking in terms of graft, let's say, but the Rav would come in, the, he would come and say, now your town, the mikveh has to be fixed. Right? And you don't have the money. I'll see to it that the mikveh will be fixed. Or the shul has to be expanded or uh, whatever. Now, that again does not lend itself to the enhancement of the rabbinate. And it puts a spin on things. It also allowed people with money to buy positions for sons and grandsons and sons-in-law and nephews, etc. Which does not mean that they were not deserving. I would say that the vast, vast majority were deserving. But that was a method of getting the job. So he went looking for a job. Uh, he had, again, as I mentioned to you, he had a tremendous reputation. So he had friends on both sides. He had Maskilim as friends, too. There was a famous Rav Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport. Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, so all the Maskilim called themselves by the abbreviation of their name, by the acronym of their names. He called himself Shir, Shin Yud Reish. He was the son-in-law of the famous Ktosa Choshen. He was a great scholar. He was a Moscow. But in, if you, in today's world, he would be a right-winger. But in his world, he was a Moscow. And he was the Rovanat in Tarnopol in Galicia. And he and the Chassidim was just open war. Just open war. And uh, he met, he was uh, 15, 20 years older than the Marat Zchiyas, the Rebzvichiyas, but he met him and he was impressed by him and he felt that this was a kindred soul, a kindred spirit. And therefore, like, he took him under his wing. In the city of Zalkove, which was a town in Galicia, the president of the Kehila was a well-known Moscow by the name of Nachman Krochmal. Nach, he was called, with Nachman Krochmal. Now, Krochmal himself was a personally observant and pious Jew, but he was a uh, philosopher. Uh, he wrote a, uh, a sequel to the Mora Nevuchim, when she updated the Rambam's Mora Nevuchim for the 19th century. And even though he was personally unassailable, his ideas 
his, uh, his view of Medrash, his view of the tradition of Chazal, etc., all smacked of the new Haskalah. And he was the president of his community. And Rappaport knew him very well. So Rappaport told him that there is this young rabbi that if they get him, you know, that's it. That's the solution because he's a great Talmud Chochem and a go. Nobody will be able to say anything against him. And they get to Chmetpeus with the Shporek, with the whole, the whole get-up. And they won't have to pay him a salary because he's wealthy. And in his heart, he's a Moscow, which was false because he never was a Moscow in his heart. Never. But he had in himself all of this secular knowledge, and he knew, and he, he would be able to, to deal with the, In fact, he was the greatest enemy to the Moscow. They didn't find that out till later. But he was really the one, because he undid the Moscow. He proved that they didn't know anything. You read his books. I mean, he destroys them completely. He destroys the biblical criticism, the whole thing, because he he had all of their weapons. The Chassidish Rebbe said they're apokorsim. He was right, but you know the Rebbe has to say they're apokorsim. That doesn't mean anything. He proved not that they're apokorsim, that they're ignoramuses, that they're liars, that they're forgers, that they're intellectually dishonest, which is a far greater blow. So they hired him to be the rabbi. Krochmal took him. And Krochmal fell in love with him. Krochmal was much older than him, even though he outlived him. Krochmal lived a long time. And he, uh, he really fell in love with him. He was there about eight months. He was the Rav Zalkov. He moved in with his wife and his kids and everything, and he wanted to leave immediately because he saw... That on one hand the the, the masculim would uh, drive him crazy, and on the other hand the chassidim said he was a maskil, and he never was able to shake that tag. And the chassidim kept up a uh, vitriolic campaign against him all of his life, matched only by the masculim on the other side who mounted this attack against him. So again. For his own personal welfare, he should have moved back to Broad, right, and sold diamonds and do whatever you want. And he would have then been, you know, Zayr Hashanirid. Everybody would hold from him. He wouldn't have, but he had this dream. His dream was to be this kind of Rav, to be the prototype of what was necessary in order to turn it around, in order to save. Uh, the Jewish people, and particularly uh, Torah Jewry, from what he felt would be at least a spiritual extinction. Again, it's hard for us to imagine. Well, it's not hard for us to imagine. You read the New York Times and see the intermarriage uh, on one day in the New York Times. It's not hard to imagine that in 50 years, Rahman al there'll be nobody left. It doesn't take much imagination. And he lived in a time where every day the secularization of the Jewish people became stronger and stronger. And in that secularization, terrible things happened. So he felt that he had the ability. Again, he had in himself uh, a great deal of self-confidence. So he felt that he had the, uh, the ability to overcome. 
If he could do it, then others would do it, and then it would be saved. But he was broken by the experience. He couldn't do it. And then others said, if Tzvi Hirshchayis couldn't do it, then who can do it? And the truth of the matter is that no one did it. The city of Budapest is composed of two cities, one on either side of the Danube. By uh, the brilliance of Hungarians, one is called Buda and one is called Pest. The Hebrew city, the Hebrew name for the city of Buda is Open or Oben. That's where the name Open comes from, Oppenheim, Oppenoma. And uh, in the time of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were treated as two separate entities. The Rov of Open of Buda was not the Rov of Pest. It was two different uh, cities. And uh, in 1831, when he was only 26 years old, this position of the Rov of Buddha became available. And there were great candidates for the position. Among the great candidates was uh, Rabbi Yaakov Loberbaum, who was the Denisivis, uh, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Eger, we discussed him last week, the father of Rabbi Label Eger and the son of Rabbi Kiva Eger. Great Rabbonin competed for the position. It was a, a great position. And the Tzvi Hirschchayis wanted to become the Rov there because he felt that if he could get that position, so then he would be in the, uh, in the cockpit. People would see it and they'd be able to do it. Also, he was looking to escape from the Chassidim, who were not that powerful in that community. Uh, his friend Rappaport recommended him for the position, and Rappaport knew a member of the board, and uh, you know, and the whole, the, it was all going. And they were fascinated by him. They interviewed him, and he spoke. He was a great orator. Amongst all of his other qualities, he was an excellent orator at a time when most rabbis were not. And he was able to take the audience. Everybody wanted him. And it looked for certain that he was going to get the job, except that the chassidim on one side and the maskilim on the other side wrote anonymous letters to uh, the board in Buddha accusing him of every crime uh, known to man. All of which were false, but it made no difference because uh, we all know it doesn't take much to ruin somebody. And uh, any accusation is treated as being true and the wilder the accusation, then the more true it must be, because otherwise, why would they say things like that? And because of that, he did not succeed in the position. Uh, that was a uh, very great blow to him. Now, for the next 25 years, he spends the rest of his time looking for positions. And this story repeats itself over and over and over again. 
the Chassam Sofer, Moshe Sofer, he is quoted a number of times in the Chassam Sofer's Chuvis. The Chassam Sofer showed him a great deal of respect. But the Chassam Sofer realized that he was different. The problem here is that he's different. And the Chassam Sofer and the Prezberger, they had their own agenda of uh, positions and of students and of Rabboni. And the Maskilim by now had discovered that he was their worst enemy, the most dangerous enemy that they had. So you have in many communities that he tried out, the Maskilim purposely voted for the uh, more extreme right-wing rabbi, knowing that when he became the rabbi, they would take over the town. And if you stop to think, you'll see that that's an excellent political strategy because they knew that, that this rabbi would not only, did that they would end up making him look like a monkey. And then everybody would join them. And that's what happened in town after town after town in Galicia and Hungary. But, and then on the other side, wherever the Hasidim were powerful, they would not allow him into the community under any circumstances. And because of that, therefore, he is a lonely, uh, frustrated, embittered genius with a lot of money and a great deal of talent, right? And a wonderful family, and, you know, and he has nothing. He's empty. It's a, one of the most tragic things in life. Uh, I just want to go through... Uh, in, he, he tried for a position in the, in the Hungarian town of Bonhard, which was a famous position. Also, he didn't get it. Then what happened is he tried for the rabbinate in Prague. And there, just to show you how his ambition was, how he felt about it, his competitor was his friend Rappaport. And Rappaport never forgave him. Never forgave him how he could go against him. Eventually, Rappaport won. If the Maritzchius would have won, Prague would have been much better off because Rappaport was not strong. And uh, in a later generation, Rameir Shapiro would write the comparison between uh, Prezburg, where the Chassam Sofer was, and Prague, and that Prague became a completely assimilated Jewish city. Even though it had great Rabbonim, the Nodeh Bihuda was there, the Cheskel Levi Landau, etc. But Prague was played out. But he went against his friend, and Rappaport had a, he had a bitter pen, and he devoted it to his former friend, so that he really, uh, he really found himself empty in the world. He next tried for the great uh, position in Lvov, in Lemberg. In every place where he went, if he could have, you know, come in in the middle of the night and they would have hired him, it would have been over. But in every place, whenever his candidacy was advanced and it became obvious that he was the best candidate and the one most likely to be chosen, his enemies came and destroyed it for him. In Lvov, by the way, for the first time he stood for a uh, degree for his secular studies, which uh, he... Uh, did because the Austro-Hungarian Empire, at the insistence of the Maskilim, 
passed a rule that from 1835 onwards, all rabbis had to be doctors of philosophy. The Ksav Sofer, the Ksav Sofer's son, fought that ruling for 25 years till he got it abolished. But all the Orthodox rabbis, practically all, almost all of them, were illegal. J.M. in the A.M. We are uh, almost concluding Rabbi Wine's lecture on the uh, biography of Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayas in the series entitled The Challenges of Secularism uh, here at uh, J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Wine's lecture is, of course, the centerpiece of our spoken word nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. And those of you out there who would like more information about his Lectures, it's 1-800-499-WEIN. It's RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And the selections, the offerings there are just incredible. Uh, So check it out and enjoy. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Round the world, the web, and AlchemSingle.com, and the AlchemSingle Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. Galit Sal in the background. Our news from Israel is next here at JM in the AM. Erev Tishabov, one hour from now, Abe Foxman. It's all coming up. Keep it here at JM in the AM. Galitzal Israel Army Radio News is next. Galitzal Amir Ushalayim Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Kanran Yavnei, Ima Shekorea Akshav. ראש הממשלה נתניהו הגיב לראשונה על תקיפת המפגינים אמש ואמר אין מקום לאלימות מכל סוג ואין מקום להסתה נגדי. כתבנו הפוליטי מיכאל האוזר טוב. אני מצפה מהמשטרה להגיע לחקר האמת ולמצות את הדין עם האחראים אין מקום לאלימות, כך אמר ראש הממשלה נתניהו ומיד הוסיף באותה מידה אין גם מקום להסתה ולאיומים ברצח נגדי ונגד בני משפחתי והאשים את יאיר לפיד ואהוד ברק בעידוד קבוצות אנרכיסטים וערעור יסודות החברה הישראלית, כך מילותיו של ראש הממשלה. לפיד הגיב ואמר, גמרנו לפחד מנתניהו, כן, אני מעודד את המפגינים, ואנשי יש עתיד הם חלק מהם. ורק אדם אחד נעצר במהלך העימותים בין המפגינים ושוחרר בצהריים בבית המשפט. סגן ניצב אסף אלמוג, קצין אגף החקירות של מרחב יפתח, הבהיר אצל אמיר איבגי ביומן הצהריים, בניגוד לדיווחים לארגון לה פמיליה, אין קשר לאירועים האלימים. אני הייתי נוכח בהפגנה בעצמי, ושמעתי את הקריאות כאלה של מפגינים שאמרו שתקפו אותם אנשים מלה פמיליה. לאור מה שעולה כרגע במישור החקירתי, אלה שאנחנו יודעים עליהם לא קשורים לארגון לה פמיליה. לא עולה קשר לגורם פוליטי, לפחות לא בשלב הזה. הביטוח הלאומי הודיע כי אם חוק המענקים יעבור היום בכנסת, יעביר המוסד ביום ראשון הקרוב את הכסף עבור ילדים מתחת לגיל 18 לחשבונות הבנק של הזכאים, וכשאר המענקים יועברו מאוחר יותר. משרד החינוך פרסם את מתווה הפעלת בתי הספר והגנים בשנת הלימודים הקרובה שיעלה מיליארדי שקלים נוספים. עם הפרטים כתבנו לענייני חינוך דורון קדוש. גני הילדים וכיתות א'-ב' לא יפוצלו ויופעלו במתכונת מלאה. כיתות ג'-ד' ילמדו בחצאי כיתות ומכיתה ה' ומעלה התלמידים ילמדו מרחוק ברוב השבוע ויומיים בשבוע יגיעו לבית הספר. העלות התקציבית של התוכנית היא 4 מיליארד ו-200 מיליון שקלים. רובם יושקעו בגיוס מורים נוספים כמו מורות חיילות משוחררות לאחר ביקורת השרים, הקבינט המדיני-ביטחוני יכונס בשבוע הבא בעקבות המתיחות בצפון. 
דיווחה לראשונה כתבתנו המדינית מוריה אסרף וולברג. הבוקר דיווחנו אצל רינו צרור, כי שרים בקבינט התרעמו על כך שטרם כונס דיון בעקבות המתיחות בצפון הארץ. לפני זמן קצר זומנו השרים לדיון קבינט שיערך בשבוע הבא ביום שלישי. מאז הקמת הממשלה כונס קבינט אחד בלבד בסוף החודש הקודם, שנועד למטרות עדכון. תושב אשדוד בן 25 מואשם באונס צעירה בגינה ציבורית בעיר. כתובנו רמי שני מוסר שרק לפני כשלושה חודשים סיים הנאשם עונש מאסר בן ארבע שנים בגלל תקיפה בנסיבות מחמירות. פרקליטות מחוז הדרום הגישה לבית המשפט בקשה לעצור את האיש עד לתום ההליכים. משבר קורונה פגע בעובדים החלשים במשק והם התקשו להחזיר את המשכנתה. כך על פי דוח היציבות הפיננסית של בנק ישראל. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה, ניתאי ענבי. בנק ישראל מתריע שמשבר הקורונה הביא לפגיעה בכושר ההשתכרות של משקי בית רבים באופן שעלול לסכן את חוסנם ולאתגר את המערכת הפיננסית, בעיקר בתחום המשכנתאות. הירידה בהכנסות משקי הבית תגדיל את שיעור ההחזר החודשי מההכנסה ותקשה על חלק מנוטלי המשכנתאות לשרת את החוב. בין היתר בגלל מתווה הקפאת המשכנתאות של בנק ישראל במשבר הקורונה, שמגדיל את ההחזר החודשי על התקופה הנדחית, ומוסיף לריבית. מזג האוויר, חם ולח. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. J.M. in the A.M. Let's do the conclusion of this lecture by Beryl Wine on the life of Ritzvi Hirsch Chayas from the series entitled The Challenges of Secularism at J.M. in the A.M. Place whenever his candidacy was advanced and it became obvious that he was the best candidate and the one most likely to be chosen, his enemies came and destroyed it for him. In Lvov, by the way, for the first time, he stood for a uh, degree for his secular studies, which uh, he uh, did because the Austro-Hungarian Empire, at the insistence of the Maskilim, passed a rule that from 1835 onwards, all rabbis had to be doctors of philosophy. The Ksav Sofer, the Ksav Sofer's son, fought that ruling for 25 years till he got it abolished. But all the Orthodox rabbis, practically all, almost all of them, were illegal. They had no right to be the rabbi. The only ones who had doctors in philosophy were the Reform rabbis. And so he, therefore, again, following his uh, idea, so he went to take the exams to become a doctor in philosophy. And while in Lemberg, in Lvov, he took the exams and he naturally passed, but all of that only contributed to the, contributed ammunition to his foes, because now he was a doctor, too, right, which was never a compliment. He then tried from Matersdorf, he tried in Nikolsburg, but finally, finally, in the year 1842, he became the rabbi in Kalish, which we uh, discussed also. We discussed Rabbi Shlomo Eger. It was in Silesia. It was outside of Galicia. There were almost no chassidim there. It was the border between Poland and between G- and Germany. And there he thought that he would be able to uh, be successful. However, what happened was that his candidacy, even though he was elected as the Rav, he was opposed especially by Kotzker Chassidim who lived in the neighborhood. And Kotzker Chassidim were very uh, 
outspoken and he was uh, he he couldn't couldn't deal with that it was it was even worse than he imagined and he was only there for two years after two years a uh, personal tragedy struck him one of his grandchildren uh, died in the community his father died uh, when the father died the business failed the brothers couldn't keep it going well so that for the first time in his life he had to worry about money and then a tremendous cholera epidemic which was common in the, in the 19th century because of the sanitation problems and bad water etc uh, broke out in Kalish and he and his wife contracted cholera uh, the doctors uh, evacuated him to Mariensbad, which was a famous health spa, and they took his wife to Francisbad, which was another health spa, to try and recuperate. Uh, they recuperated slightly, and they began, they wanted to return to Kalish. On the way back to Kalish, they came to their old town of Zalkave. When they came to Zalkova, the Balabatim in town refused to allow him to leave. Now, after the whole story, they refused to allow him to leave. But uh, the uh, the hand of tragedy was not stayed, because so he agreed to stay for Yom Neroyim in Zalkova. But uh, his wife had not really recovered from the cholera, and she died called Nidre night in Shul. And uh, he tried to come back to uh, his sons, tried to bring him back to Kalish, uh, but he only made it to Lvov, uh, where he died, Rishchedesh Mar Cheshven. And uh, he uh, is buried in Lvov. And the uh, great Rabbonim of the time came to be maspid him. He left us the legacy of all of these great books, which are studied until today. But he also let, left us the legacy of the difficult time that he lived in, of uh, a person literally tilting at windmills. And is the Jewish Don Quixote, so to speak, trying to win the unwinnable war. But uh, in his life, uh, his point, uh, I think, is clearly are pointed out to us uh, many of the problems that we face today uh, because uh, we are heir to the problems of 200 years ago. They are still here. They haven't departed. If, if anything, uh, many of them are in sharper focus than they have been before. And uh, he tried to walk the middle ground, which is always dangerous like walking on a tightrope. So it's hard enough to walk the middle ground even if nobody is throwing things at you on a tightrope. But if uh, you're being shot at on both sides, it's uh, almost impossible. And uh, therefore, uh, in spite of the fact that his successes are enormous, uh, the failure of being able to establish the prototype that would mark uh, a new turn in the rabbinate or in the view of these things uh, had a very telling effect because after him nobody else tried. And in his, uh, in his personal tragedy, I think is reflected also uh, somewhat of a national tragedy for the Jewish people 
because a person such as he uh, comes along very rarely. And uh, his contributions were enormous and could have even been more enormous. But uh, as I mentioned to you before, that's the question of the mazel of God's faith. And uh, in his story, in his life, we see that that's how it turned out for him. This J.M. in the A.M. Series entitled... Um, let me get this straight. <laughs> series entitled The Challenges of Secularism. Rabbi Beryl Wine here at J.M. in the A.M. And... Um, Rabbi Wine Lecture Information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. JM and the AM, a reminder, less than an hour from now, we will speak to uh, Abe Foxman. He's chairman of a uh, really important initiative being done by the Met Council on Jewish Poverty for Holocaust Survivors. We'll speak with him and... Today being Erev Tishabov, in my opinion, it's an amazing day to speak to him. We uh, we focus today on so many tragedies in the history of the Jewish people for good reason. This is this is the week to do so. We think about so many things that have happened in our past um, as a people, as a nation, and he could certainly speak to um, to the tragedy of the twentieth century. As a child survivor of World War II, with a unique story, so we'll speak to him about that coming up on this Erev Tisha B'Av morning at JM in the AM. Tomorrow we will present. Uh, tomorrow we will present our Kinnis service here at JM in the AM. It's something that we do every single year whenever. Uh, Whenever Tishabov is observed on a non-Sunday, on Tuesday or Thursday, uh, it's something we do every single year, and it's something that uh, Rabbi Goldwasser does with us um, to really inspire, uh, especially those who are not able to make it to synagogue. There are a lot of people who can't make it to the synagogue on Tishabov morning. Uh, many of them traditionally because they're either home taking care of the kids or they're at work or have to be at work early in the morning and they can't go to a what they would consider to be a regular uh, Tisha B'Av Kinos service in the morning. Um, so those people that uh, you know normally join us Tisha B'Av morning really appreciate what we present this year. Because there are more people that are not going to our other categories of people that are not heading to shul uh, with COVID-19 around. That uh, service that we provide on Tisha B'Av Day becomes even more important. So tomorrow it's Kinnis. I'm assuming, I have to confirm with Ray Goldwasser, but I'm assuming we'll start about 7.15 in that area uh, tomorrow morning. Maybe a drop later. And uh, I hope that uh, all of you will join us. It is always, again, an inspiring way to spend Tisha B'Av morning. And I thank Rabbi Goldwasser in advance. Friday, it's our Erev Shabbos Nachamu program. I want to thank Mark Zamek, who is busy preparing an amazing Erev Shabbos uh, Nachamu special, which is going to air on Friday, brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. 
Thank you, Mark Zomick. Uh, and we are, uh, and we're getting ready to get back to our regular format. Believe you me, we have an amazing week coming up next week. A lot with NCSY uh, Monday with Yom NCSY because remember Yom NCSY is Sunday night uh, with Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman. If you have not yet purchased your All Access Pass to Yom NCSY, it's only eighteen bucks. Summer.ncsy.org slash Yom NCSY. Summer.ncsy.org slash Yom NCSY. Don't be left out. Um, we ask everybody to please keep in mind Tamar Elisheva Bastvora for Rafush Lema. Tamar Elisheva Bastvora for Rafush Lema. And we thank you for that. Uh, our friends at Art Scroll are offering 15% off all Rabbi Barrel Wine titles plus free shipping. In honor of the fact that he is the centerpiece of our spoken word programming here at JM in the AM during the nine days. Uh, again, use promo code radio. Uh, any Rabbi Wine title, 15% off free shipping with promo code radio. Go to artscroll.com for details on that. Also, in terms of tomorrow, I wanted to remind everybody there's a virtual Tisha B'Av Isaiah Peace Wall prayer service for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. Usually, we gather. Uh, in New York City at the Isaiah Wall, Kotel Yeshayahu. We are usually there for Mincha and for a variety of presentations. It's always been, and I'm sure will continue to be, a very inspiring way to spend Tisha B'Av afternoon. The only unusual part about it is I usually see people I haven't seen in a year, <laughs> and, that, and that makes it awkward on a day when you're not really supposed to greet people, but you know. Uh, other than that, it really is an inspiring and incredible day. Uh, this year, you get to zoom in and participate virtually uh, in the Mincha service. Mincha will be at 145. The presentations will be at the end of Mincha. It's coordinated by Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns. Uh, it's a Zoom a meeting, a meeting ID uh, 86000 Eight six five. That's the meeting ID on Zoom. Um, and again, it's a virtual Tisha B'Av Isaiah Peace Wall prayer service for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. If you want information, you can email Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org, Shuli at thebayit.org. It's Erev Tisha B'Av, and I remind you that on Erev Tisha B'Av, we do not say Tachanun in the morning. We do not say Tachanun at Chakras. I was reminded about that by the uh, Twitter feed, Jewish Calendar Tidbits. I'm a big fan of that Twitter feed, Jewish Calendar Tidbits, and I recommend it. I think it's at Tidbits Jewish, if I'm not mistaken, on Twitter. So, again, I highly recommend it, and I hope you'll take advantage and uh, and you will um, explore it. Uh, Jewish Calendar Tidbits. Uh, and I hope they're getting more and more followers. They deserve it doing a good job 79 degrees sunshine and a high of 91.1 cloudy tonight low 75 and tomorrow partly cloudy a high 95 yes Tishabov will be the final day of our heat wave here in the northeast it's unbelievable I, I really want to do a study if the nine days every year are the hottest days of the summer I need to do that study 93 years shall I am 79 here in New York City as we say good morning at the JM in the AM and uh, feel free to comment on our app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Seal Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Let us know uh, anything and everything that you want us to know about. And um, 
And that is that. Uh, Rabbi Goldwasser will join us at 7.30, also tomorrow morning with Kinnis. Uh, speaking of Kinnis, Rabbi Wine has a great series on Kinnis, and he has a lecture that specifically speaks about the Kinnos that we say tonight. There are Kinnis that are said after Eicha. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the subject of Kinnis on this Erev Tishabov at JM in the AM. The Kinnis for the uh, night of Tishabov are few in number because the uh, main Kino is the Megillah of Eicha itself. During the daytime, there is no requirement to read the, the Megillah of Eicha, but there is a uh, custom that after Kinos, uh, people gather together, Megillah of Eicha is read. But that's only a custom, whereas at night it's uh, an obligation. So the main uh, Kino of the night is Eicha itself, therefore there are very few Kinos afterwards. So the first kina, uh, follows the uh, order of the psukim in Eicha. And uh, what it does is uh, uh, acknowledges the uh, sins of the Jewish people which led to the Yichurva. Now I want to uh, see here at the fifth kina, hey which is from Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, whom I mentioned yesterday. And this kina is built upon a, uh, an imaginary dialogue between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and between the kingdom of Yehuda, the southern kingdom. Now, if you uh, look at the kina, you will see uh, how the rhyme is followed, and the meter is followed. Now the entire trick in poetry, in this type of poetry, is not to notice that the person is bound to the rhyme, and not to notice that he's bound to the meter. In other words, that it should not be stilted. And so here, uh, the the northern kingdom says... uh, that uh, it was taken into captivity and has never returned. The ten tribes have been scattered. And uh, to a great extent, the, the ten tribes have not survived as tribes. It says, Shnosai Orchu, Velo Orchu Shonai. Your years have been long, right? The, the, the exile of Judah has lasted for thousands of years, but the uh, descendants are still here. But my years have not been long. Now, uh, uh, it, it touches upon the question of what happened to the ten tribes, which is a uh, really one of the great mysteries. Most uh, of the uh, commentators agree that somehow members of the ten tribes uh, came south into Judah and assimilated with the rest of the Jews, so that there are Jews within the Jewish people today that are from every tribe. However, there's a uh, romantic legend that exists in the Jewish world that the ten tribes were taken away into exile as a whole and that they exist behind a river somewhere in the world, 
The river is called the Sambation, and that this is a magical river uh, that uh, is uh, during the six days of the week. It spews uh, sulfuric acid and uh, bricks and fire so that no one can cross the river. And on Shabbat it rests. And because of that, therefore, the ten tribes never have a chance to come because of the fact that uh, the river blocks them. And this legend uh, took hold within the Jewish people, so especially at a time when uh, there were uncharted places in the world. And it would be uh, possible to believe that there are corners of the world where people are hidden away. And uh, during the Middle Ages, there were people who came and said that they were representatives of the Ten Tribes. They somehow escaped, and they came to... Uh, so uh, one was a man called Eldod Hadoni, Eldod from the tribe of Don. So he's quoted Lahalocha. He lived in the ninth century. He's quoted in Halocha. Uh, the uh, the Rosh quotes him. Others quote him. Enigmatic, mysterious figure. The second one, the most famous one, is a man called David Horuveni who came in the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th centuries to Europe, and he claimed that, that he was an emissary of uh, the tribe of Ruvain and from the Jewish kingdom of the Ten Tribes, and he came with uh, all sorts of documents, diplomatic documents. And in that world, you know, he was accepted. He was accepted not only by the Jews, he was accepted by the non-Jews. Uh, he had an audience with the Pope, all the kings of Europe, and uh, he uh, inspired uh, uh, messianic ideas within the Jewish people. But finally he was arrested uh, by one of the uh, kings in Central Europe, and he died in prison. But uh, a famous incident, David Oruvain. So uh, we don't know what happened to the Ten Tribes. It's interesting that in the world uh, everybody wants to be Jewish but the Jews. So the English claim that they're descended from the Ten Tribes. Japanese say they're descended from the Ten Tribes. Everybody wants to be descended from the Ten Tribes. So this is the conversation that Shlomo Yugabiro puts in the mouth of the ten tribes speaking to the tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin. And that basically uh, is the uh, order of the kinos for uh, the, the night time. Now the uh, Kriyas HaTorah for uh, Tisha B'Av is taken from this week's Parsha, from the Parsha of Eschanon, where Moshe tells the Jewish people that uh, if you stray away from God, uh, you will have consequences that follow you. And that's the Parsha that's read in the Kriyas HaTorah. The Haftorah is taken from the Novi Yirmiyah, 
the Haftorah is uh, sung to the melody of Eicha, and it's a, really a, an elegy on uh, what happened uh, to the Jewish people, even though the Novi is saying it out of prophecy, it hasn't happened yet, but he speaks of it as reality. At the end of the Haftorah, there are two famous psukim that I'd like to spend a moment on. Koamar Hashem, thus says God, Al Yishalel Chochom Bechochmoso, let not the wise man praise himself because of his wisdom. Val Yishalel Agibor Bigurasso, and let not the strong man praise himself because of his strength. And let not the wealthy man praise himself because of his wealth. So the Mephorshim say that the uh, Novi here is talking not only about physical wealth and strength and wisdom, he's talking about the definitions that uh, Chazal gave to these concepts. The Gemara says, Ezeu Chochem. Who is a Chochem? The Gemara says, Oroes Anola, someone that sees the future, that has vision, that's a Chochem. The Gemara says, Ezeu Oshir, who's a wealthy man, a Sameach Bechelko, someone that can be satisfied with what he has. The Gemara says, who's a Gibor, a strong man, Zeakovish Yitzro, he's able to control his desires able to discipline himself. So the Novi says, even if you're that kind of a chocham, even if you're a person with great vision, with holy vision, and even if you're a person that you can control your desires, and even if you're a person that's satisfied with what you have, don't praise yourself yet, because that's still not the goal. That's not what we're aiming for. This is what a person should praise himself. Understand me. Understand what I want. To see the forest and not just the trees. I am the Lord that performs chesed, goodness, Mishpat, justice, Uzdaka, righteousness, Ba'aretz. So uh, those are the fundamental principles that we see throughout the Tanakh that the prophets spoke about. That there has to be a society of goodness. People have to be nice one to another. Chesed is not just giving money. Chesed is giving a smile, soft word, saying good morning. Mishpot has to be a just society, not a corrupt society. Be an element of rectitude to it. Zdoka is righteousness. Righteousness uh, basically means that there are certain absolute standards. So 
certain things are right and certain things are wrong. These are the things that I want, God says. JM in the AM. We will continue with Rabbi Burl Wine uh, coming up. He is uh, speaking about kinos, and specifically the kinos that we recite tonight on Lil Tishabov. Coming up 30 minutes from now, Abe Foxman. He chairs a new initiative with the Met Council on Jewish Poverty and in support of Holocaust survivors. We'll explain all that coming up at JM in the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zebenav Yosef Alevi, Zechonishmas Esther Basar Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Yismach Moshe once said something wondrous that applies to Tishabov. A king gave his son a huge sum of money. He also gave him a precious jewel for his son to wear around his neck as a sign of his father's love. The son, however, went on his own ways. He squandered everything, began to do things that were not befitting of a prince. The only thing is, he still had that precious stone that his father had given him. He continued in his evil ways. He committed crimes that finally resulted in the decree of the death penalty. Even though it meant that there would be no continuation of the royal lineage because he was the king's only son. When the son saw that there was no hope, what benefit is there going to be if I leave this world? He took the stone from the inside of his shirt and at the last minute he showed it and gave it to the king. When the king saw it, that he still had the stone and he still kept it close to his heart, he knew that the son still had a connection and he saved him. So too, a yid can sink to the lowest level, can squander all the wealth from his father's house, from the house of Hashem. But as long as he still holds the precious stones of the Beis Amikdosh close to his heart, he can still be redeemed and saved. The Chassam Sofer says that when a person has a velus in tsar, when an individual has trouble in sorrow, it says when you're in distress and all these things have happened to you at the end of days, you will return to Hashem and listen to His voice. It means to say that if a person will be upset about Golos, about the exile in the Chorban Beis Hamikdosh, the destruction of the Beis Hamikdosh, and the person's heart will be broken in the Golos, then he will wait for the Yeshua, the Tsar in itself, the pain that he has, will give him complete Tshuva. This year especially, after all that we've gone through, may we merit the great Nechama, the great comfort, the great salvation, and may we forever hold the stones of the Beis Hamikdosh close to our hearts. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. He'll join us, Rabbi Goldwasser. will live tomorrow in the 7 o'clock hour for Kinnis right here at J.M. in the A.M. If you're not able to make it to shul, observe Tisha B'Av with us. It'll be an inspiring service as it always is. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine, on the subject of tonight, tonight's kinnis after Eicha in Shul. Uh, here he is at JM in the AM. God wants from us. 
So many times in life, uh, one of my favorite phrases is that, you know, people just don't get it. They don't understand. And when you don't get it, so then uh, it's hard, hard, hard to, uh, to achieve this goal. I have a story that I, uh, that always illustrates it to me. I have a friend of mine, uh, older than I am, that he fought in the American Army in the Second World War, and the uh, the, uh, the rotation method in the Army is not the way it is today. That uh, they would rotate veteran soldiers out and put in fresh soldiers. But there, you stayed in the front lines until you got killed or the war ended. So 80% of the soldiers that landed at D-Day never survived to the end of the war. Because uh, the statistics are against you. In any event, he fought through Europe. He landed on Normandy on D-Day. He fought through the entire way into Germany, the last days of the war. The last days of the war, uh, uh, Hitler had old men and young boys fighting. Now, uh, the young boys were fanatical. They were Hitler youth. They were the suicide bombers of their day. And uh, an 11-year-old with a rifle can also kill you. So he told me that he and his friend buddy, uh, were hiding behind the wall of a farmhouse, and they were pinned down by fire from these kids. And he said that he was overcome by uh, a tremendous uh, sense of hunger. So he reached down in his boot to take out a candy bar that he had, part of the American rations, give a person instant sugar. And he bent down a bullet shot over his head and killed his buddies next to him. So he came to a yeshiva in Chicago uh, 50 years after D-Day. They asked him to speak about his experiences, etc. And uh, he told that story of how uh, in war one realizes that there's a personal God, that there's not a protest. He told that story. Someone raised his hand and asked him, was the candy bar kosher? So that's when you don't get it, right? I had that experience yesterday. I had a meeting with uh, Yosef Mendelovich, who was uh, one of the great prisoners of Zion. Spent 11 years in the Gulag, a great tzaddik. I mean, he's just an unbelievable personality. Great Jew. And uh, he uh, was one of uh, in a group of people that attempted to hijack a plane from Leningrad to have it fly to the West because they wanted to come out of Russia into Israel. He wrote a book about it called Mifza Chatuna. Operation Wedding, but that's what they call the plan. And the book is going to be translated into English now. It 
it's in Hebrew. Uh, out, it's just remarkable, the book, and the person is remarkable. So he said that he went to a certain yeshiva also uh, in the United States, and uh, he was asked to speak about his experiences, and he spoke about his experiences and the gulag and everything. And so uh, when it was over, one of the uh, students uh, asked, he said that, did you uh, consult with the Gedolim before you uh, attempted to escape? So, again, you know, you don't get it, you don't get it. So the Novi wants us to get it. That's basically what Aftor is about. That's really what Tishavah is about, to get it. Haskel v'yadol osi to know me, to deal with me. So to deal with God, one needs a certain breath of vision. One has to see uh, past, the present, the future. One has to see one's role. A lot of uh, factors that enter into Haskell Diodos. But that's what the Novi wishes for us. That's what he demands for us. All right, now the kilos of the day, which are uh, many in number, there are 40 kilos. So as I mentioned, over half of them are from Rabbi Lozar Kalir. And Rabbi Lozar Kalir, the first uh, 21 of the kilos are all Rabbi Lozar Kalir. And they are uh, difficult Hebrews. <laughs> And they make reference to many midrashim and many things that are written in the Talmud. And so therefore, uh, it's not only something to be uh, recited, it is something to uh, be studied. Again, you will notice that he maintains the rhyme and he also maintains the meter. And uh, that's the greatness of the poetry. And his thing is always based on Eicha, on the Psukim of Eicha. Uh, in most of the uh, poetry, he has an acrostic hidden, which spells his name, Elazar Barabi Kalir. But in Chov uh, Beis, in the 22nd uh we have the mayor of Rottenburg, and this kina uh, refers to the Asara Haruge Malchus, and martyrs that were killed by the Romans. And this, uh, we have a similar poem that we recite Yom Kippur for Mincha, or in some Communities, it's recited in the Musaf uh, service of Yom Kippur, which records the martyrdom of the ten great men that are mentioned in the Talmud, the martyrdom at the hands of the Romans. Now, it did not happen in one day. They, in fact, the ten men are not even contemporaries. It's over the, spirit, the period of almost a century. But in the poems, it's like all lumped together, as though it was all in one day. 
and uh, among them naturally is the story of Rabbi Akiva, who was uh, whose skin was flayed, he died, was tortured to death, so he was killed in Caesarea, in Caesarea. And according to Jewish tradition, his body was taken to be buried in Tiberias, where uh, the cave is shown today as being his, his burial place. Now, uh, also according to Jewish tradition, he was killed Arab Yom Kippur. And we remember Rabbi Akiva in the opening prayers on the night of Yom Kippur. Because we say the verse from uh, Tehillim from Sounds, Or Zoru Alatzadik, Uli Yishrei Leib Simcha. There is a light that extends for the righteous one, and uh, for those who have a straight, correct heart, there will yet be joy. So the, that posit refers to Rabbi Akiva. And how do we know it refers to Rabbi Akiva? Because his name is spelled in an acrostic of the last letters of the words of the posit. Or is Resh, that's Rabbi. Zarua is Ayin. Latsadik is Kuf. The Yishrei is Yud. Leiv is Beis. Simcha is Hay. So that spells Ayin, Kuf, Yud, Beis, Hay is Akiva. So there's a uh, discussion in Halacha whether Akiva is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, or it's a non-Hebrew name. The rule is, my friends, that if it's a Hebrew name, and it ends with that sound, then it's always a hey is the final. Like Sora, Rivka, Yona, Micha, they're all spelled with a hey. But if it's an Aramaic name, or a non-Hebrew name, then it ends with an Aleph. Abba. Uh, Acha. All of those names all end with an Aleph. Now, in our Gemara, in the printed Gemara, Akiva is always spelled with an Aleph, as though it were not a Hebrew name. But the Orzarua, who lived in the 14th century in Bohemia, so he says that Akiva is really a Hebrew name, and it should always be spelled with a He. So there are Akivas in the world that spell it with a He, and there are those that spell it with an Aleph. You'll say, what's the difference? The difference is practical difference in halacha is that if there's a divorce, how do we spell the name? Because the rules regarding names in a divorce are enormously strict. So we usually leave it up to how the person himself spelled the name. But here we have the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. And then we have the martyrdom of Rabbi Yehuda ben Bobo. Rebuta ben Boba was the one that uh, saved the Torah by uh, giving smicha to his to the five Talmudim, to Rameya and Rebuta, and Nosen, and Shimon. And then we have uh, Rabbi Hanania ben Trajon, who was burned with the Sefer Torah. 
and uh, there we have the famous Gemara that uh, he said that parchment burns, but the letters fly in the air. Meaning you can destroy people, but you can't destroy ideas. You can kill Jews, but you're not going to destroy the Jewish relationship to Torah. So these, uh, this kina is about those ten martyrs of the Romans. So you already have a kino about something different than the Churban Beis Amigdash. This is a kino about the martyrs at the time of Hadrian, uh, really from, uh, from the, before that time, uh, over the century, over the second century. Second century, the Common Era, uh, to a great extent, Rome attempted to destroy the Jewish people, destroy the leadership of the Jewish people. Now, in the Kino Chavvav, the 26th, we have a uh, analogy, a poem written by Konimus ben Yehuda. And the founding family of Ashkenazim was the Konimus family. Now, Konimus is a Greek name. The Konimus family originally came from North Africa, emigrated uh, northward, ended up in France and the Rhineland. And the Clonimus family, uh, between the Clonimus family and Rashi's family, you have 80-90% of all Ashkenazic families. And they intermarried with each other. And there were relatively few Ashkenazim in the world. It's estimated that there were probably no more than 10,000 Ashkenazim at the time of Rashi. And since they all intermarried with each other, the Ashkenazim Jewry till today, even though today, Baruch Hashem, we number in the millions, Ashkenazic uh, Jews have a very small DNA base. And because of that, that's the problem that there are certain genetic diseases which are very common amongst Ashkenazi Jews, sometimes exclusive Ashkenazi Jews. Tay-Sachs, Rauche's disease, other types of diseases. And because of the small, small DNA base that we have, therefore, uh, genetically, Ashkenazi marrying Ashkenazi can pose problems. So uh, today we have testing you're aware of it, but before uh, before a young man and a young girl become serious, uh, they're tested, uh, their genetic uh, composition is determined, and they're each given a computer number, and then uh, they check with the central database, and if they are both carriers, so then the advice is that they shouldn't proceed further with the relationship. This would be universally uh, followed, and probably in two or three generations, the diseases could be erased from our midst completely. The other solution is uh, Sfarim, Yemenites, Persians, other genetic stock. But the Ashkenazim have this small base. So the Klonimus family is famous for uh, 
their erudition in Talmud, and they're famous for their poetry. And so in Chovvov, he has a poem about the Crusades regarding the destruction of the Jewish communities of spires, worms, and mites. Now, spires in Hebrew is Shapira. That's the name that they called it. And if you see Jews that are named Shapiro, they have some connection all the way back to spires. And there are Jews named Magensa. I knew Jews named Magensa. They have a connection to Mainz. Rashi studied in Magensa. The yeshiva of Rabbeinu Gershom was in Magensa. Now these three kihilos, they were three separate towns, but they were under one uh, roof organization. They were called Kihilas Shum, Shin Vov Mem. Shin stood for Shapiro, the Vov for Hermaiza, the Mem for Magensa. The play on words because Shum in Hebrew means garlic. They were spicy people. And uh, the oldest Jewish cemetery in Europe that still extant is in Mainz, dating back uh, to the 12th century. But these kehillas were destroyed in 1096 in the Crusades. And this kina uh, bemoans that fact. So now we had a kina for uh, the uh, martyrs, ten martyrs, and now we have a kina for uh, the Crusades. In uh, 27, some of Lazar Kalir appears again, and here he has a conversation, his poem is a conversation between the prophet Yermio and Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. He goes to the Morasamach and he says, so to speak, do something to stop, to prevent the Churban. And they answer him that they are powerless, even though they are brokenhearted. So here is a question which the Talmud itself debates, is whether those that have already departed from this world are aware of what happened in this world after their death. But in the Jewish legend, uh, certainly is the, the fact that they're aware. Always uh, would say that uh, my uh, vision of a rich man's hell is to see what happens to his money after they're gone, after he's gone. You know, the old man never took a vacation to give me. First thing the kid did when he got up from Shiva was took a year trip around the world. Father wouldn't take off ten minutes from the store. In Jewish thought, the uh, the idea here is that he has a conversation with Avraham, uh, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, with Leah and Rachel and Rivka and Zorah that they should intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. Then there are a number of continuing keynotes that are all uh, 
from Rebbe Lozer Akalir, and then a number from uh, the Ekonomist family again. You have a famous keynote on uh, Lama Graves 32, which compares the state of the Jewish people uh, when they left Egypt and the state of the Jewish people when they were driven from Jerusalem. In many kehilos, this keynote would put the music to a special melody. It's very common in Lithuania, especially. Uh, and it uh, signifies the comparison of the moment of the greatest glory with the moment of the greatest tragedy. And it ends, the last stanza is, of the great joy that we will have when we return to Jerusalem. Uh, in 34, also is a kina about the Crusades. Now the Crusades left a... Uh, Tremendous, traumatic impression upon the Jews, uh, because uh, never again would they be able to, uh, uh, so to speak, ever trust their Christian neighbors. And even though the Jews expected uh, anti-Semitism from Christianity, they did not expect mass murder. And the Crusades unleashed mass murder not just uh, individual thugs, but it was an organized effort supported by the church. Now, it depended. There were certain uh, communities where the church protected the Jews from slaughter. For instance, in Rashi's community of Troyes, why? So, uh, Rashi, when he was a student in Mainz, the Catholic seminary was across the street from the yeshiva. And many times the seminarians, who were then required to know the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, uh, would cross the street to ask questions. Mostly they did not receive a uh, very... Uh, cordial welcome, but uh, there was a certain uh, seminarian by the name of Lutin whom Rashi befriended, and a new Rashi in Mainz. Later on, Lutin became the bishop of Troyes, and in the Crusades, he saved the Jews of Troyes because he locked the gates against the Crusaders. And the simple lesson is to be nice to everybody. Because you don't know when you're going to meet him again. Shlomo Melech said that in Kehelis, Shlach Lach Mechal cast your bread upon the waters, and many later days, maybe you'll find it. You never know. In our own family, my daughter in law's grandfather. Uh, was the uh, last Orthodox rabbi in Berlin. He was still stuck in Berlin in 1940. He still was in Berlin. And uh, one night, uh, he had a knock at the door, 
He opened the door, and a Gestapo officer stood there. And he said to him, Rabiner Munk, if I were you, J.M. and the A.M., it is uh, the lecture series on Kinos, which, of course, are said tonight and tomorrow uh, on Tisha B'Av or by Beryl Wine. Uh, information about his lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN. We will uh, close out this lecture later on during uh, the 8 o'clock hour. Um, 1-800-499-WEIN or uh, by wine.com. And um, remember our friends at Art Scroll, all of Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, titles uh, this week, in honor of the fact that he is the centerpiece of our spoken word programming during the nine days, uh, all of the uh, titles are 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code radio. Again, that's 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code radio. Very anxious to get to our conversation with Mr. Abe Foxman. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world the web at NahumSiegel.com on the NahumSiegel Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Abe Foxman is with us live via telephone, really for two reasons that we have him on today, Erev Tishabov. Number one, he's chairing this uh, amazing initiative for Holocaust survivors with the Met Council on Jewish Poverty. You know that we are big fans of Met Council, its leader, uh, David Greenfield. They're amazing staff and volunteers, and, now, and they've always helped Holocaust survivors, but now they're really stepping things up, and we'll talk about that campaign in just a few minutes. Also, it's Erev Tishabov. We focus uh, this week, and specifically as we get closer and closer to Tishabov, on the tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. Mr. Foxman, Abe Foxman, is of course a survivor, a World War II survivor. His parents uh, were survivors, um, and um, he has a unique story. Not unique in that we haven't heard similar stories, but unique in that when you hear it, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, it is quite a unique tale for... uh, a modern Jewish history, and uh, he, and that is the reason. Uh, those are both the, of the reasons why we felt this was the perfect week to speak with him. As so many of us focus on the tragedies of the Jewish people, even the modern day ones. Uh, Abe Foxman, uh, national director of the Anti Defamation League from 1987 to 2015, currently the uh, national director emeritus. Four years ago, he became vice chair of the board of trustees at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City to continue his efforts uh, to fight anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman, welcome to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. A pleasure to speak with you, and I'm so glad and thankful that you decided to uh, accept our offer to join us this morning on this uh, Erev Tishabov. Um, I mean, essentially the story is that uh, your parents left you uh, after you were born with your Polish Catholic nanny, um, and then after the war, once they survived, they came to get you. Is that an accurate summary of the first four or five years of your life? More or less. Now, the word left me is a little bit too stark. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it, it basically, that's the, the, that's the outline. Um, my parents lived in Warsaw when the war broke out. And uh, some people... They, some people moved, they decided to move east, uh, where my father came from, which was Baranovich, and that's where I was born. Um, they had a nanny for me, um, and as the Germans were moving east, uh, my parents also decided to move further east, and so the four of us um, moved, and the Germans caught up with us in the city of Vilna, capital of Lithuania in 1941, 
at that time when the Germans issued orders for all Jews to be assembled in the ghettos, uh, my parents made uh, the most difficult decision of their life, which uh, turned out to be the most serious beneficial one because indirectly it not only saved my life but saved their lives. And so my nanny said to them, listen, uh, this is only going to last a couple of weeks. You go, I'll take care of him, and you come back, we'll be here. Well, the couple of weeks turned out to be four years, but uh, the decision, which my parents could never, never, Nathan, never explain to me. I would always say to them, see, you gave me away. And uh, hmm. it was it's an irrational decision for parents to make, but it was a decision um, that I get also with miracles, because you don't survive just by by man's decisions alone, right. but they were able to fend for themselves, knowing that their purpose is to come back to me. Um, family units of three with an infant, the chances of survival were minus zero. I'm not even sure they understood all of that. So it was beshared, it was a miracle, it was, um, and then, you know, um, when they, my mother escaped from the ghetto, my father was liberated, came looking for me. They found each other. My nanny basically said, I saved him. He belongs to me in the Catholic Church. And uh, they tried every which way to make us a family. Uh, it didn't work. Eventually, they had to go to trial. It was the first custody battle in occupied and liberated, what the Soviets called liberated uh, territories. The court ruled I belonged to my parents. Uh, we were then repatriated. The Soviets permitted people who became refugees during the war to go back to places from whence they came as long as it was in their empire. We were repatriated to Poland. She was Polish, so she was repatriated as well. I was kidnapped. My parents kidnapped me back, and uh, eventually we smuggled our way to the American zone in Austria in DP camps for several years and then came to the United States. So wow. that's the essence of, of the story. Unbelievable. Abe Foxman with us. You know, it's interesting. We were discussing here yesterday uh, in preparation for this conversation what, what that was like. D did the nanny just cooperate with your parents, etc.? It actually went to trial, and one would suspect that, you know, e even with the sympathies, you know, immediately post-war for the victims— um, one would still suspect that in an official trial, uh, it, it, you know, we, we would think the decision would go against the Jewish parents. Uh, they must have been surprised when, when officially they were awarded your custody. Well, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say. We have to remember this was the communist regime, the Soviets. There were also issues. She, um, she went to the Soviets and said my father survived because he collaborated. They arrested him. Mm. Uh, then they let him go. Then she went again and said he was working for a factory that he steals. They arrested him a second time. A third time, now she still brought the KGB. They arrested him a third time. So the Soviet authorities basically said to my parents, we have no time for these games. You have to, you know, litigate it. And they did. Now, there were two there was a trial and two appeals. And um, the record that she abused the system was also part of it. And at the end where she said, well, she was really, she had no proof that I was hers, right. et cetera. She was saving a soul for the Catholic Church. 
and it fell on deaf ears to the Soviets. So in the context of the time and the place and, you know, right. uh, it, it was, you know, my parents did have a, you know, a good Jewish lawyer uh, <laughs> who argued my case, who I eventually, he became a professor of Russian at Brandeis. And many years later, I met him to thank him uh, in Boston, but uh, Dimitrovsky was his name. Did you, did you ever, as an older child or as an adult, meet up with your nanny? No, that's one of the open questions still. I have no closure. I never said thank you to her. Is she considered uh, a righteous Gentile? Um, in, in my definition, absolutely. In Yad Vashem's definition, probably not. Wow. Because my mother provided for us, which you know she provided food. And right. She she stole and smuggled. So from that perspective, I I don't think Abraham would uh, recognize her as a righteous. But there's no question in my mind, she risked her life every single day uh, for four years because I was circumcised and she had no papers and she had no records. And she would always make sure that we always we ran from time to time from the neighbors. So um, now, uh, at the end, you know, what motivated her? Who knows what motivated her? Her humanity and, and, and I guess her faith. Um, but no, I, I, I am still I'm trying to find a place of her a burial. Uh, it's not in Poland. I'm not trying through the authorities in, uh, in Belarus to find out maybe she can went back to Belarus and that's where she passed away. Wow. I would like to. I would like to find a grave. I would like to come and and bring closure by at least saying thank you. You know, close to close to her being, but I never was able to. Amazing. Abe Foxman is with us. We'll talk about the initiative with the Met Council. Uh, there are a couple other things in terms of history on this era of Tisha B'Av that I want to review with you. I'm not asking this for the sensationalism. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to set up a, a, another conversation. Uh, it, it sounds like, from what I've read, you were a good, practicing Catholic child. Would that be accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's, and, that was part of it. And the reason I say it like that, and we'll get to the transition about learning about your Judaism in a minute, but I could only imagine, and you can, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, but I could only imagine that, that that experience had to have helped when you went into your professional career in this country in terms of relationships. with Not, not relationship meaning, oh, you know, guys, I was one of you at one time. I don't mean it like that. Just in terms of understanding the mentality of people who are not Jewish, understanding how their religion and their attitudes work toward others, I would have to imagine that all of that was helpful in your career. Am I right? Nobody really knows, uh, you know, people say you survive so you can do stuff, and so that's, that's almost arrogance. I don't, I don't. I, I would say I was lucky, lucky in the sense that I was given a platform of an opportunity in my adult life uh, to deal with um, two elements which were so, so important um, in, my, in my growing up. One was hate and the other was love. Right. You know, the, the hatred, which was all around us, the anti-Semitism, which, which was the, the which brought about part of the Holocaust, and and the love of a woman who, despite what happened at the end, uh, acted at the highest level of humanity, risking one's life for somebody else. Right. So yeah, I I was fortunate. I don't know to what extent. Um, you know, it, it motivated me in what I did, but but certainly I was fortunate 
that I could deal with both elements, fight the hate and embrace of the love. People, you know, there's always had this, you know, this is why you became, and then my answer would be, you know, God bless doctors, all of them, but why does somebody become a proctologist? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. You know, a very race. Um, I don't know. All I know is I say, Baruch thank God. I had the good fortune, um, the miracle to survive, but also to be able to try to make a difference in, in the elements that so shaped my first five, six years of my life. And m- many people, especially those in my generation and older, uh, you know, were, were, are very familiar uh, with your work, uh, your career at the ADL. Is there a way for you to describe the hate that you're referring to, the hate that you know was all over Europe and, you know, it, it was so around you as you described it growing up and then, you know, and 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 obviously many victims in our global community of that hate. And then, of course, the hate that you had to deal with here uh, when you were consulted and when you were approached when hateful statements were made, when groups gathered, uh, you know, saying certain things and doing certain things and publicizing certain things. Have have you been able to crystallize what this hate is all about? Why people, why certain people have this terrible animosity towards certain others? I guess if we, if there was an answer, if I had the answer to your question, then we could eliminate it. Um, the answer is we don't. And all these years. Uh, especially anti-Semitism, for me, is a virus without an antidote, without a vaccine. Um, yeah, we can, we can analyze reasons, the forces, the elements, um, but there is, I guess part of the trouble is there is no one reason. Uh, Mark Twain, many, many years ago, um, when he went on a trip to Europe to give a lecture tour, it was in the 1890s, um, came back and wrote an essay concerning the Jews. And uh, he found that wherever he went, he found anti-Semitism. And he found it with smart people and stupid people, rich people and poor people, religious people and, um, and atheists. And then he came and wrote an essay, and he came to a conclusion that it was jealousy. Uh, that the reason for anti-Semitism is a jealousy of the Jewish people because of their smarts, because of their creativeness, tenacity, faith, whatever it is. Uh, The truth is, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons. We don't know. Uh, I I guess to to some extent I I come to the conclusion that people have a need uh, to blame others, uh, to explain away whoever they they are aren't. And there there probably is a need um, to hate. Uh, now the antidote, the antidote, the only antidote we have is education. Right. Education is a very slow process. You mm-hmm. can infect a child in, in nanoseconds to hate, but to unlearn it is a is a very very tedious uh, process, and and that's that's a serious problem uh, because it's much quicker to to be infected, and as we know with this virus that we're <laughs> fighting now. How difficult it is to undo it. Recovery from these viruses are hard, whether it's a physical one or whether it's the one we're discussing of anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman is with us. One more thing on this. uh, I know we have to talk about the initiative and we will get to it, but I'm so fascinated by some of the challenges you've had during your career. Um, 
I can imagine that you were you were put in certain situations where you had to make decisions and come out with statements. Not everybody always was happy with with some of the approaches and some of the stands you had to take, which I get. Not a criticism, just an observation. And I'm I'm sure you know when you when you released a certain statement or took a certain stand. I'm sure half the Jewish community loved it and half the Jewish community didn't. <laughs> I get the whole thing. Uh, and your successor, frankly, I believe, is also going through some really difficult challenges right now as well. With that in mind, what do you think of the whole cancel culture? Our our position here has always been, including when I worked at a terrestrial radio station for decades, that we don't call for boycotts of anybody because we never want anyone calling for a boycott of us. Uh, essentially, uh, that's what's happening right now, as we see, as so many uh, people, concepts, uh, um, uh, statues of history, etc., are being canceled, are being eliminated, in a sense, being boycotted. Uh, and I'm sure there have been many times where you thought during your career that, that it would be an appropriate response to boycott a certain company, to boycott a certain government, uh, to boycott certain people who say certain things or march uh, in protest of certain things or in demonstration of certain things. H- how do you balance that? At what point do you say to yourself, now is the right time to call for a boycott, to call for you know canceling out or the attempt to cancel out somebody, uh, and balance that with, you know what, we as Jewish people have been the victims of boycotts for centuries. It, it, it is unwise for us to use that approach. Uh, Nachum, I, I still believe it's unwise. It's interesting. Uh, there's a boycott now uh, called by the chief rabbi of Britain, um, I know, I've, I've never called for a boycott. I think the threat of boycott is more effective than a boycott. Uh. Boycott sometimes um, hurt people you don't intend to hurt, don't right. necessarily bring about um, the, the resolution that you want. And as you said, we, we are susceptible to a boycott. We, we are vulnerable. Uh, we're a minority. We have been boycotted for nothing. So right. we certainly don't want to legitimize. So no, I have always maintained that that's not the vehicle um, to use. But, you know, different people, different times. Uh, you know. Today, as you say, we're in a cancel culture. And right. a cancel culture, part of it is you boycott somebody, you boycott right. them. I guess you could want to erase them, erase who they are and what they do. And there, too, I... Um, I had the opportunity to confront bigots, um, and uh, I, I always believe, Nathan, that uh, Nahum, that um, <laughs> if you want to change people's minds and hearts, you need to provide for them a, a an avenue, a vehicle, an opportunity uh, to change their minds. Otherwise, why bother? So you know, once if you're a bigot, you can never be an unbigot. You can never repent. You can never. Then why bother trying to 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 change people's minds and hearts? And I don't know. Um, and, and that's I, maybe you you know better than I don't know whether the concept of to err is um, human, to forgive is divine, is is Jewish or non-Jewish. But I, I believe in it. Um, and so the cancel culture doesn't achieve very much. It may make somebody feel good that they that they eliminated somebody, but in the long run, uh, we will all uh, you know suffer the loss, whether it's somebody that's creative or, or, or business, whatever. So no, that doesn't mean that I've always been successful, but I've always tried with bigots 
to see whether or not um, there's a there's an avenue to 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 turn them around. Communication is the key in so many areas of life, and it seems that you are <laughs> that you're fully endorsing that approach. <laughs> communicating, sitting down and talking, it's it's a really good approach. And the older I get, the more I realize that. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the easiest approach, but it's it's the most meaningful in terms of of people living together. You've essentially been introduced uh, recently, and there have been news stories about it, as the chair of this new initiative. I don't know if officially you're the chair, but uh, it's certainly uh, the impression is that you are. Uh, this initiative for the Met Council on Jewish Poverty, a Holocaust survivor initiative. Now, now, full disclosure, not only are we big fans of of the current administration at Met Council, uh, we also have a connection there, which I think a lot of people know about, but they are doing amazing work. And uh, it, it must be something for you to see someone come in like David Greenfield and essentially rebuild an organization that was going through some very tough challenges. Oh, absolutely. It's it's an essential organization for the city, for our community. And after it, it, it suffered uh, terrible tragedies and setback, um, David is unique. And, you know, people say to me, why are you doing this? Why are you, at your age, are you taking on another <laughs> responsibility? Well, one of my answers is, uh, first of all, it is who I am. <laughs> I am a survivor. And right. so, you know, but but then you don't. You have to know David Greenfield. Uh, it's very very difficult to say no to David. And so when David reached out and said, "Listen, um, the pandemic has uh, revealed something that we knew, but not to the extent that we thought we knew, and that is the vulnerability." Yeah, a lot of people are vulnerable, and poor people are vulnerable, and elderly people are vulnerable. But Holocaust survivors are vulnerable of the vulnerable because. Um, they are uh, not able, many of them, to go to soup kitchens. They have, many of them have needs for kosher food. And so we have this special need um, now, and that is to feed as many Holocaust survivors as we can. And right. he said to me, Nate, um, you need to leave this. And I said, you know, how do you, again, as I, how do you say no to him? And also <laughs> understanding, uh, understanding, what hunger is um, in in this whole area of Holocaust survivors? Um, there's a lot that we cannot do for them. There, you know, there's a lot we cannot heal or repair their traumas, their memories, their pain. Their, but there, but this is an opportunity to able to do something. Um, you know, the one thing that is within our power is to make sure that they never go hungry again. And so, uh, if, you know, if I can help in keeping uh, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 uh, survivors not have to worry about that pain of hunger again, then how can I say no? And Matt Council is, is equipped. So they, you know, they, they have the facilities, they have the know-how, they right. have their expertise, they have their staff. And so now with Uber, um, which will help us deliver um, the food, uh, we have volunteers in addition to professionals. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a needed challenge, an exciting challenge. And for me, it's almost like, um, you know, ending the circle. I started a survivor, and so what am I doing now? Trying to make the, you know, the days of survivors a little bit 
better and a little bit easier. Um, the All the information is at metcouncil.org. Everybody out there, we are encouraging you on this era of Tisha B'Av to take something upon yourself to help the Holocaust survivors. Abe Foxman chairs the initiative for Met Council. Again, it's metcouncil.org. You'll see it all there in the news section. has articles about uh, Abe and taking on this uh, cause. Uh, Met Council, very organized website. You'll be able to see all the different projects they have in general, but the Holocaust Survivor Initiative obviously is our focus this morning. And Abe, not to get too personal, but I don't think you'll mind me mentioning this if it's uh, uh, going to you know, get the point across to everybody. Uh, you now, at the age of 80, being a child survivor, uh, it's essentially those who are between 80 and 100 years old, right? That final generation uh, that we are now helping. This is this, and and imagine the key demographic that I'm describing. I mean, in general, uh, people in their ninth and tenth decades in this country, um, you know, many of them are impoverished. Many of them are going hungry. Um, you know, certainly uh, those who are Holocaust survivors. Uh, there are plenty of people in that category going through the same thing. So it's really a a, a I don't want to say a final opportunity, but but certainly a significant opportunity to help people in a very sensitive age group who've gone through a lot and who are, as Met Council can show us statistically, who are in many cases literally impoverished and hungry. Yeah, so it's an opportunity for doing another mitzvah. Yeah. It's a very important mitzvah. It's very direct. It's very clear. It has direct impact. can make a difference. So, yeah, it's... Uh, Again, I feel privileged to have that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, everybody out there, just as an example, for $1,000, uh, 330 elderly survivors will receive a meal tonight, obviously. Uh, we say that generically. Tonight is obviously the start of Tisha B'Av. Uh, six weekly food deliveries for $330, for $110, two weekly food deliveries, and you could actually provide 12 nourishing meals for elderly survivors for just $36. All the information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. Mr. Foxman, you know there's one more topic I must address with you because the basic staple during the regular year for the last 37 years of this program is Jewish music, and there is a song that we have played very, very often that you actually have uh, have a role in or something to do with. Um, the song is called A Man from Vilna, and it's a song I actually uh, contacted A.B. Rottenberg this week just to make sure I had the real story right because the song has a little bit of composer license in it. Uh, and essentially it was uh, Rabbi Goldman, who's the grandfather of someone who actually lives in this neighborhood, uh, Rabbi Goldman, who, um, uh, who uh, was a, if I have it right, a member of the Soviet Army, a Jewish member of the Soviet Army uh, who was involved in liberating the camps and came to Vilna Simchus Torah, which I assume was 1945, is that the is that the right start to the story? Yeah, uh, you you are right. Um, when ha- first, my how I how I well, so the story is, my father, Olav Shalom, was a lot wiser than I ever understood when I was growing up, and um, he was very very sensitive in bringing me back. To Yiddishkeit, you know, uh, on our halacha, on our tradition, once a Jew, always a Jew. Right. Um, so I didn't have to go through anything. I was mauled, I was circumcised, so there, that was it. Um, but there was a process of, you know, I used to go to church, I used to spit on Jews. Um, so um, when we lived together, even during the time of the trials, um, my father, step by step, introduced me to Yiddishkeit. Uh, I used to wear a 
uh, crucifix. Uh, wow. My father placed it with a talus cotton. For a child of five and six, um, as long as I knew I need something, I, I wear something on my body that brings me closer to God, it really didn't matter whether it was a cross or whether it was a talus cotton. Um, as long as I had something that right. you know, brought me you. closer to God, connected me to God. Right. I would say my prayers every night in Latin hmm. to, to Borgia. My father taught me the Shema. And, you know, I didn't understand Latin. I didn't understand Hebrew. It didn't make a difference. But I knew that every night before I go to sleep, I pray uh, to Borgia, to God. Um, and so uh, everything was done in a, in a very... Um, gradual process. The first time my father took me to shul uh, was on Simchas Torah. Now you can imagine Simchas Torah after the war, after all the destruction and the death, etc. So, and, and yet it was it was a Simchas Torah and in the great synagogue of Vilna. Really? On the way to shul, I passed the church. I dropped my father's hand. I crossed myself. I met a priest, I dropped my father's hand, I kissed the hand of the priest, and off we went uh, to shul. Um, in synagogue, I met, um, we met, there was a Soviet officer who approached my father and said to, asked him whether I was Jewish. And my father said yes. And he said he traveled thousands of kilometers and um, during the war, and he did not see a Jewish child alive. Wow. And could he take me and dance with me? Um, and, you know, as, a, as if, as if uh, Simcha Sorrell, right. and my father said yes. Right. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I came home and I said to my nanny, I like the Jewish church. Sing <laughs> and they dance. Um, Anyway, yeah. If, you, um, if you're going to be introduced to Judaism, Simchas Torah is a good day to walk into shul. Right. Even <laughs> even after the even right. after the Holocaust. Now, fast forward uh, many years later, I um, I'm speaking. I'm at Yad Vashem, and I am addressing a group of um, Israeli soldiers from Sahal and telling my story. And, um, and professional in the audience is a young lady, Rabbi Schoenfeld's daughter, who was working at Yom sure. Hashem, right. Fabian Schoenfeld's daughter. Right. And she approached me and she said to me, Mr. Foxman, you talk about this soldier. Do you know where he is? You know, I said, I have no idea. I said, but I have a feeling that he is alive somewhere because somebody sent me this song. <laughs> uh, as that you're talking about, the yep. boy from Bill, right. which means that somebody else is telling my story. Right. So, and I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, make a long story short, a year later she called and she said, I found him. Uh, he's a rabbi now. He lives in, uh, in Detroit. And um, I had this course um, to go and we, uh, we reunited. Um, he was elderly. He's now passed away. So I at least had the opportunity um, to you know, to meet again. And uh, wow, from a Soviet officer <laughs> to a rabbi, unbelievable a rabbi in Detroit with a wonderful family. Um, yeah. So and and both of and both of you sitting there with incredible memories of Simchas Torah, nineteen forty-five. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because his family, when 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 I finally reconnected, said, you know, he would always tell the story, wow. but we weren't sure whether he was making it up <laughs> or it was true. And it was apocryphal, and now we know that in fact it, it was true. It was on the front page of the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press. It was a very beautiful moment. And there, uh, and there are photos of that reunion online. People could search it and find it. I, be, I believe it took place 10 years ago, if I'm right. I think it was 2010. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, your parents and you come to America what year? We came in 1950. We were in DP camps uh, for several years. That's another story. But yeah, And, and we, your father? We your fa- by Hyatt and, our rel- and some relatives that we have. And here. your father was employed as what in the United States? Uh, everything in the beginning from a cutter to a cleaning, a Pechter's bakery. Did you garage, did you start did you start here in the Lower East Side? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah we lived on Cannon Street. Sure. Wow. Yeah, I went uh, I went to RJJ for a little time, and then we moved to Jersey on a chicken farm, and then to Brooklyn. So I went to Shiva Flappers. But um, no, then my father eventually worked for Yivo. Word for Tsika, which is the Central Yiddish Culture Organization, Yiddish books. He was a historian. He was a folklore writer, um, etc. Um, yeah, so it, 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 the last thing that he did was sell Yiddish books. Wow. And what year did your parents pass away? Uh, my father in, passed away in 77, He and my mother in um, 85. Wow. What an unbelievable story. Uh, Abe Foxman, everybody out there on this Erev Tishabov, take advantage of a really well-organized campaign, as everything at Met Council is well-organized these days, uh, to help Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust Survivor Initiative, information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. They've made an amazing choice having Abe Foxman chair this campaign. Oh, by the way, I think I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're looking to make this not just local New York, but but national, if possible, to help Holocaust survivors and possibly yeah. possibly international yeah. if they could do it. Absolutely, but first we need we'll start here right. and then we'll move. Understood. Beyond. But they got there are a lot of efforts. There are efforts going on. We can coordinate it. We can work together and and make it more effective. So I hope that that's and also the effort of of volunteers. Now is not the time. You know, right. Many volunteers are ready to right. do it. But originally, when we talked about it, we talked about uh, inspiring young people to reach out to the survivors. So it's not only uh, it'll be ruchnius and gashmius together. It'll be not only their needs, uh, which are physical needs of food, but also spiritual needs of connecting and right. and, and caring and being reinforced. So. That will have to wait till this magafa is over. Metcouncil.org for information, everybody. Metcouncil.org. Finally, Abe, um, tonight's Tishabov, and you and I focused, you know, on one story, yours and your family, in what was such a tragic period for Jews. And you know that in general, young and old, uh, today and tomorrow, focus a lot on national tragedies of ours over the last many centuries. Any special message as we start, Tishabov? Anything you'd like to leave us with as you think back to what was and, and think of what we have now as a nation around the globe? Um, in every generation, they stand, we say in, in the Haggadah every year, the Chalasenu to destroy us. And I, I think Tishabov 
reminds us of all the tragedies, but at the same time it reminds us and it teaches us about our resiliency um, and our strength and our faith and our continuity and our togetherness. And so, yeah, I, I think the message is we need to be united. Yep. This is a, we live in a world of, of politicization, of dissension, of anger, and maybe maybe in this moment of, of retrospection, while we fast and, and think about um, ourselves and who we are, maybe that's a moment that will strengthen the unity of Amisrael. Uh, we can always use um, unity and, and, and care for each other. So it's always necessary, but maybe at this moment uh, we remember um, the tragedies we survived and that um, it will inspire us to be stronger together as one. Amen. Uh, we're going to do our best to uh, support the, uh, the initiative for Holocaust survivors, metcouncil.org, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Abe Foxman. Thank you. And those of us who fast, our Gringotunas and Easy yes, Fast. Yes, our Gringotunas and Easy Fast is right. Thank you so much for that. Wednesday morning broadcast, JM and the AM. My thanks to Abe Foxman. A wonderful opportunity not only to speak about the Met Council Holocaust Initiative, Holocaust Survivor Initiative, I should say, uh, but in addition to that, to hear, to hear what one family went through during the war. And how lucky they were to survive. And we know it's not luck. We know what it is, Hashgacha Pratis, but how lucky, in fact, they were to survive. And um, there were a lot of very, a reminder on this era of Tisha of just how many tragic stories there have been, not just in our history, but in recent history. And I thank Abe Foxman for helping us remember all that this morning here at JM and the AM. It's Erev Tisha B'Av morning, the uh, focus, the centerpiece of our spoken word programming during uh, uh, during um, the nine days, of course, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture information at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. We're going to conclude this uh, lecture, which is about Kinos being said on Tisha B'Av, on this Erev Tisha B'Av at JM in the AM. In uh, 27, Sonar Glozer Kalir appears again, and here... He has a conversation, his poem is a conversation between the prophet Yermiol and Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. He goes to the Morasamachpela and he says, so to speak, do something to stop, to prevent the Khurban. And they answer him that they are powerless, even though they are brokenhearted. Well, here is a question which the Talmud itself debates, is whether those that have already departed from this world are aware of what happened in this world after their death. But in uh, Jewish legend, uh, certainly is uh, the fact that they're aware. Always uh, would say that uh, my... Uh, vision of a rich man's hell is to see what happens to his money after they're gone, after he's gone. You know, the old man never took a vacation to give me. to leave Miami, you know, first thing the kid did when he got off the ship was took a year trip around the world. Father wouldn't take off ten minutes from the store. In Jewish thought, 
the uh, the idea here is that he has a conversation with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, with Leah and Rachel, and Rivka, and Zorah, that they should intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. Then there are a number of continuing kinos that are all uh, from Revelozer Akalir, and then a number from uh, the Eklonimus family again. You have a famous keynote on uh, Lama Days 32, which compares the state of the Jewish people uh, when they left Egypt and the state of the Jewish people when they were driven from Jerusalem. In many kehilos, this keynote was put to music, to a special melody. It's very common in Lithuania, especially. And it uh, signifies the comparison of the moment of the greatest glory with the moment of the greatest tragedy. And it ends, the last stanza is, of the great joy that we will have when we return to Jerusalem. Uh, In 34, also is a kina about the Crusades. Now, the Crusades left a uh, tremendous traumatic impression upon the Jews uh, because uh, never again would they be able to, uh, uh, so to speak, ever trust their Christian neighbors. And even though the Jews expected uh, anti-Semitism from Christianity, they did not expect mass murder. And the Crusades unleashed mass murder with not just uh, individual thugs, but it was an organized effort supported by the church. Now, it depended. There were certain uh, communities where the church protected the Jews from slaughter. For instance, in Rashi's community of Troyes, why? So uh, Rashi, when he was a student in Mainz, the Catholic seminary was across the street from the yeshiva. And many times the uh, seminarians, who were then required to know the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, uh, would cross the street to ask questions. Mostly, they did not receive a a very uh, cordial welcome. But uh, there was a certain uh, seminarian by the name of Lutin, whom Rashi befriended, and a new Rashi in Mainz. Later on, Lutin became the Bishop of Troyes. And in the Crusades, he saved the Jews of Troyes because he locked the gates against the Crusaders. The simple lesson is to be nice to everybody, because you don't know when you're going to meet them again. Shlomo Melech said that in Kehelis, Shlach Lach Mechal Pnei cast your bread upon the waters, on many later days, maybe you'll find it. You never know. In our own family, 
my daughter-in-law's grandfather uh, was the uh, last Orthodox rabbi in Berlin. He was still stuck in Berlin in 1940. He still was in Berlin. And uh, one night, he had a knock at the door. He opened the door, and a Gestapo officer stood there. And he said to him, Rabiner Munk, if I were you, I would leave Berlin tonight because they will come and arrest you tomorrow. So the rabbi said to him, uh, why are you telling me this? So he said, because my father was a bookkeeper for a Jewish concern 20 years ago. And my father embezzled money from that concern. And the owner, who was an Orthodox Jew, caught him. And the owner said, I don't know what to do with you. We'll take you to my rabbi, who was the monk's father. Whatever he says, we'll do. And they brought him to uh, the elder Rabbi Munk, and the man uh, wept and asked for forgiveness, and he said he has a big family. And so the rabbi said, uh, what we should do is we should give him a different job in the, in the factory, in the concern, a job that he doesn't have anything to do with money, and we should take a small amount of money every week from his paycheck as symbolic restitution, but that he shouldn't go to jail and that he shouldn't uh, be fired. So the Gestapo man told him, he said, well, he said, Rabiner, now we are even. And uh, Mook took the train that night and miraculously was able to escape. Eventually he came to New York. But you never know. I mean, that's that's what makes life so interesting is that you never know. So that's emphasized here over and over again in the uh, in the Tinas, both the good and not so good. Uh, in Kino Lamed Hay, there's the famous medrash that uh, there was blood in the temple that was not able to be washed off. It was the blood of the Novi Scharia that was murdered in the temple. And the uh, head of the Babylonian army attempted to rub it off with Jewish blood. He killed the Kani, he killed children. Blood wouldn't settle. Until he came to the realization, he said, if God won't forgive for one innocent murder, then what hope do I have? And he did tshuva and died of a broken heart. So that medrash is repeated in this kino. Now we come to 37, which is Rabbi Alevi Sion Alosi Shali Vishlom which, as I discussed yesterday, probably the most beautiful of all of the poems, and it ends as follows: Ivoch Lemosha Velahayev. You God has chosen you, Jerusalem. Zion as his dwelling place. 
therefore happy is the person, Yivchar, who has chosen, Yekorev, to come close to you, V'yishkon Bachatzeroyach, to live in your courtyards. Ashrei Mechake, happy is the one who is able to wait, V'yagia, and the day will come, V'yired, he will see, Alos Oreich, your light, the dawn of your light will rise. V'yuboku olav shechoroyich. And the morning sun will break over him. L'iros betovas bechiraich. To see again the good of your chosen people. L'alos besimchaseich. To rejoice in your joy. V'shuveich ele kadmas l'uroyich. When Zion and Jerusalem are restored to the days of its youth. So that became the slogan, so to speak, of the Jewish people. The thing that we look forward to. Then we have quite a number of uh, poems uh, that uh, begin with the word Tzion that are a copy of Rebiro Alevi's style and meter, written in the exact same fashion, but it's not Rebiro Alevi. In uh, the 42nd one, in Membeis, is what I mentioned to you uh, yesterday, the keynote of Mayor of Rottenburg over the burning of the Talmud in the uh, square in Paris in 1240. So we have, as we have seen, uh, different keynotes for different tragedies. And uh, finally, the uh, last keynote, which we all stand for, uh, is written by an anonymous author. And uh, there is a, uh, all of the communities of Israel have a melody for it. The melody is not the same in all the communities. In the Ashkenazic world, there is a uniform melody uh, that we sing uh, this last keynote. Uh, regarding all of the things that we have lost, the disruptions that have come upon us, the troubles that have befallen us, and our hope uh, that the Lord will restore us and uh, that uh, Tishabov will be transformed from a, a day of sadness and fasting to a day of rejoicing and feasting. J.M. and the A.M., my uh, apologies, we lost, I mean, we didn't lose, because obviously in the archive you'll hear the entire thing, uh, but we uh, had dropped our uh, network connection uh, for a couple of minutes in the uh, uh, conclusion of Rabbi Wine's lecture on Kinnis, so I apologize for that, but again, in its entirety in the archive, you could hear it at any point today. And uh, in its entirety, if you get the lecture series bar by wine, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. And uh, uh, that was the uh, conclusion of his... Uh, that actually is the last lecture in his series about Kinnis. Uh, there, se- there are other lectures. Uh, that happens to be the... Uh, uh, the one he um, he recorded uh, as the final one in that series.
again, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com. And keep in mind that our friends at Art Scroll are offering this week, in honor of Rabbi Wine being the uh, centerpiece of our spoken word programming during the nine days, all of his titles at artscroll.com at uh, 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code radio. Make sure to use promo code radio to take advantage of that offer with our friends at uh, Art Scroll. A uh, couple of things. If you don't subscribe to our weekly newsletter or to our daily thread, and you'd like to, you'd like to see what's going on here and be in touch with us, uh, you could email Avrami, af at nachomsegel.com. He'll take good care of you and make sure to include you. It's af at nachomsegel.com, af at nachomsegel.com. Also, today is Erev Tisha B'Av. There's no mincha. There's no mincha. There's there's no there's no tachanun at mincha. There is no tachanun at mincha today. We learned that from our friends on Twitter, Jewish Calendar Tidbits at Tidbits Jewish, at Tidbits Jewish, and um, and um, those of you out there who would like to uh, subscribe, it's one of those Twitter feeds that we are. Big, big fans of Jewish Calendar Tidbits at Tidbits Jewish. Uh, feel free to um, subscribe, and you'll be kept up to date on certain things. That are, what they what they write today? Let's see what did they write today on Jewish Calendar Tidbits. Uh, they wrote no tach- uh, today's era of Tishabov, no tachlan at mincha next year. Nine av will be almost two weeks earlier. On the secular calendar. Yeah, David Cutler yesterday mentioned that uh, Yomensiusy next summer is July 19th. And that's after Tishabov. So, yeah, we're talking about a pretty serious uh, early Tishabov for next year. Uh, if, in fact, we'll have to observe Tishabov next year. And we should all live and be well and just get to next summer. One of the lessons we've learned from this current pandemic. You never know. You never know what the next day may bring. Let's all live and be well. Uh, tonight is Tishabov. Tomorrow, Rabbi Goldwasser will join us live for Kinnis. I hope you'll join us, especially if you can't be in shul tomorrow morning. That'll start in the seven o'clock hour tomorrow. And of course, Rabbi Wine's lectures, appropriate lectures, uh, will be included tomorrow as well. Please keep in mind Tamar Elisheva Bastvora for Rafuah Shlema. Tamar Elisheva Bastvora. Big thank you to our friends at A and H, one of our key sponsors here. Uh, Shabbos Nachamu is coming up. Lots of grilling, lots of barbecuing. A&H hot dogs available at Great Kosher Supermarkets nationwide and at every Trader Joe's nationwide. And A&H has a website, kosherdogs.net. Save uh, 10% every time you use promo code radio. Check out A&H today. Uh, the virtual Tisha B'Av Isaiah Peace Wall prayer service is tomorrow starting at 145. The Zoom meeting ID is 86 86- Zero 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 four eight one eight six five. Again, it's eight six zero 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 four eight one eight six five for the virtual Tishabov at the Isaiah Wall. That's something that we do every single year when we're around, but obviously we won't be there tomorrow. But virtually, you can participate. Yo, Mencius, why is Sunday? And assuming you can afford it, you got to be nuts not to purchase the ticket for $18 to see an amazing concert with your family of Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, and a really inspiring program with great videos and just a whole bunch of wonderful messages. 
that they're going to have tomorrow, not tomorrow, Sunday, as part of Yom NCSY. So Yom NCSY this year is virtual. It's the Sunday night of Nachamu weekend, beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Go to summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Information there about uh, the videos that will be available uh, regarding Tisha B'Av and, of course, information on the site about uh, this coming Sunday night as well. Summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy for information about Sunday night. Mazal Tov to all those who have already participated in group flights this summer with um, Nefesh Benefesh. I uh, <laughs> help the. I, I can't get over every time we get a, a notice from Nefesh Benefesh. I can't get over some of the things that we're learning. For instance, give me a second here, and I'll tell you what I mean. Um. For instance, 78 future lone soldiers arrived in Israel this week on two Nefesh Benefesh Group Aliyah flights. Just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Um, a lot of Jewish heroes out there, and it seems most of them are on Nefesh Benefesh planes, <laughs> on Nefesh Benefesh Group flights. Information, nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. By the way, back to NCSY for a moment. Remember, before Yom NCSY on Sunday night, we're recording Monday's JM in the AM. So Monday's JM in the AM will be, quote-unquote, our annual Yom NCSY show. Wednesday will be live at TABC and TNEC. That's where one of the NCSY summer programs is taking place. So we're going to do that Wednesday morning. And don't forget Tuesday morning. I know that we still have... Um, I know that we still have Tisha B'Av uh, going on uh, that starts tonight and goes through tomorrow, so we still have to observe Tisha B'Av. But once Tisha B'Av is over and went to Nachamu and Yom NCSY and everything, keep in mind that that this coming Tuesday morning, this coming Tuesday morning, Danielle Renoff is going to be my guest here at JM in the AM. Uh, her cookbook is uh, already one of the best sellers ever. Even even before it was available, it was one of the best sellers ever. Peas, love, and carrots. The cookbook. Danielle Renoff, over 430 pages, 350 recipes. You can go to artscroll.com. She is my guest Tuesday morning, 7:45 Eastern time, right here at JM in the AM. So keep that in mind. And uh, from what I hear about her popularity. It will likely be an interview that a lot of people are going to be listening to, thank God. I'll try to be at the top of my game <laughs> as we speak with her Tuesday about the brand-new cookbook. Again, artscroll.com for information, artscroll.com for information. Uh, tonight, there'll be um, uh, some people will be going to shul. Others will be uh, reading Eicha via Zoom. Uh, I noticed that our friends at YU are doing a Zoom Eicha for the, for the world, whoever wants to tune in. Shachris uh, tomorrow. Um, I noticed that one shul in our neighborhood is actually breaking after the Haftorah so people can recite Kinnis at home, and then they're going to regroup for Elitzion in the end of Shacharis and then and then Mincha at 145. So there's a lot of different approaches to what's going on in this very interesting year, an unprecedented year of observing Tisha B'Av during the uh, pandemic. Tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM, Rabbi Goldwasser will be with me live not in studio, but he'll be live via telephone. And he will be uh, delivering explanations and inspiring words regarding Kinos 5, 7, 
Uh, that's going to be happening tomorrow morning in the 7 o'clock hour. If you're not able to make it to shul tomorrow, we say this every year, but boy, this year it's really, you know, um, poignant. If you're not able to make it to shul tomorrow, not only can you hear it live, but obviously after 9 a.m. you could hear the archive of it as well. And it's always an inspiring way for uh, myself and Rabbi Goldwasser to spend Tisha B'Av morning when Tisha B'Av is Tuesday or Thursday, when it's not on Sunday. And... Um, and um, we'll do that tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a uh, an interesting Erev Tisha B'Av Wednesday. A big thank you to Abe Foxman. Thanks, all of you, for tuning in. And, of course, a big thank you to Rabbi Wine. Tomorrow, Tish above here at JM and the AM. Join us. Have a um, have an easy Erev Tish above, and an easy fast on Tish above. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you: remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. Mm-hmm.